gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman Report on this Wednesday, September 13th, 2017. I am Joe Hagman, your co-host, coming to you live from our radio and television studios in northwest Pennsylvania. Uh, we got a great show lined up for you tonight, just a few items of housekeeping. Uh, we, we're going to have uh, Peter Barry Chowka on in hour two, and we're going to have uh, a guest, Charles Van Wick, on in hour three, and that's going to be a fantastic interview um, he's a pastor who stopped a few terrorists that attacked a church in South Africa where they killed, I believe, eight, eight or eleven and wounded up to fifty-three. And he stopped them with his thirty-eight and, uh, shooting one terrorist. And he's got a great story to tell. And we're going to do that in the third hour. Before we get started here, got a quick word from Doug for our sponsor tonight, Casper Mattress. Portion of broadcast brought to you by Casper Mattress, the award-winning sleep brand. Oh, what a great mattress. I miss it already. Casper.com slash CFP radio. That's Casper.com slash CFP radio. A special offer to our listeners. $50 toward your purchase of a mattress by using promo code CFP radio. Just go to Casper.com slash CFP radio and use promo code CFP radio. More on that later. All right, uh, we're going to jump right into tonight. We got a, a lot of places we're going to go. In the we have the first um, few minutes open, and then we're going to be joined by just recently released Navy sailor Christian Saucier. He's going to tell his story about the photos he took on a nuclear submarine and was sentenced to almost a year in prison. And we're going to talk about his case in relation to other similar cases and his penalty versus. Um, and then what, when this happened and how this happened, it's going to be a, a very good interview. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And this kid just got out of jail, and we're going to hear his story uh, in just a few moments. A couple pieces of news I want to hit. We have um, the, the count continues to ride, rise. Many dead in a nursing home in Florida, Hollywood, Florida. Um, earlier today, the headline said five dead at nursing home. Now it's up to eight as they continue to drag bodies out. And also I'm hearing that um, several bodies in the Florida Keys area, the southern Florida Keys area, are still being recovered too. So I'm sure we're going to have an updated body count on the storm total as the week progresses. Also something we've been talking about with the economy on this show, the latest numbers have come in for how much uh, the federal government collected in taxes through the last quarter, or I'm sorry, for the first 11 months of the fiscal year um, through October 1st, that ends October 1st, 2017, the federal government set another record and it increased from $8.5 billion, the tax revenue that it can, uh, collected, up over $3 trillion in tax total tax revenues, and yet the federal government is still running a $673 billion deficit. So as they continue to collect record amounts of taxes quarter after quarter, year after year, they continue to run higher deficits. 
as we showcased the piece on Hagman Report yesterday from Michael Snyder and his website uh, that he wrote, Debt Nightmare, Does Anyone Actually Care That Our Exploding National Debt Is Ruining Our Future? And we talked about that a little bit on the show yesterday. Um, my father's on the way to Branson, Missouri, to go to the True Legends concert, concert conference with Steve Quayle. So we have John filling in tonight for my dad. And John and I do a show each and every day, 2 to 3 p.m., called the Hagman Daily Show. And that's been a lot of fun doing that. And now we get a chance to to work together here on Hagman Report on air. And it's uh, going to be a lot of fun. we got, what, three shows? Uh, three, perhaps four, depending on how well Doug and Renee do getting back. Folks, greetings. So <laughs> let's <laughs> Let's plan for four. Greetings and God's blessing. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor to be here tonight. I'm receiving gesticulation from Tech Eric. Yeah, I didn't get that. What's the? I'm, I'm not sure. I think I think I scored a field goal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Okay, so here, here's what we're doing. We're making me look bigger, and uh, I'm into that. Well, you could be like my dad, and you know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Me. You want to talk about uh, <laughs> being made to feel bigger, folks? It's it's a long journey to. Uh, I think back to 2012, standing on a set in the middle of the night at Warner Brothers and listening to Doug and Joe, and they had just got the show started, and uh, I never really imagined I'd be working with them, and I certainly never imagined I'd work with them from this chair. And let me tell you, folks, this is a wonderful family, but it takes a lot of hard work to work from this chair, doesn't it, Joe? It takes a lot of hard work, no matter what chair you're in. Um, as you've seen the the pace of our day it just it's non-stop from morning until we get done with the show at 10 at night and then you know we can rest after that um which makes for some long days sometimes especially when you're starting your days at seven eight in the morning uh and don't let my dad fool you oh i was up at 4 a.m <laughs> yeah he, he he forgets to mention uh how his schedule works but anyway um we can get into some news here before we have uh christian on and how do you pronounce his last name is it saucier I believe it's the French pronunciation, Saucier. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be a fantastic interview. John got that um, scheduled today, and he's only been out of prison six days. And many of you are familiar with his case from the presidential election. Uh, Trump even commented on this during the campaign, and we'll talk about that when he joins us. Um, a couple of places I just want to hit real quick uh, before we, we get into that. There's a few things, interesting things going on um, in the world of news today, and we talked about this a little bit on our show. Hillary is in the news. She's got her new book out. I'm not going to go through all the, the news I went through today. <laughs> Folks, if you want, read some of the excerpts. Uh, the Daily Caller has a great piece up that talks about Hillary and um, women. Hillary says women who voted against her caved to pressure from their fathers and husbands. In the book, she goes on to explain how after the election, all these women came up to her and asked her for her forgiveness for not voting for her, and she said she could not bring herself to absolve them of their sins. Isn't Literally, that, isn't she that used the somewhat word. sexist, Joe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, it is. But you know, she she can't do no wrong being the uh, you know the queen of of evil that she is. Um, and also, if you don't want to read the Hillary Clinton uh, snippets from the book. There is plenty of other news out there. There's a, a article on Drudge that we posted earlier on Hagman Report about a city council allowing illegal immigrants the right to vote in local elections. And this is a, a slippery slope. You know, uh, voting is a right. Uh, 
secured for citizens by letting people who are not legal residents or actually are here illegally you you are um you're doing a huge disservice to all the legal citizens who do vote absolutely and, i mean it's breaking the law just i mean it's craziness what they're allowing to get through but this is in maryland college park maryland it's just a local thing for local elections but i'm sure we're going to see a lot more of this here in the near future well it serves both sides joe as you and i discussed the other day on the hagman daily show uh the left uh, in perpetuity wants the block of votes and so bringing in immigrants allowing them to vote as quickly as possible uh streamline the uh, citizenship procedure if there even is that protocol any longer and then of course uh for all the fox news flag waving republicans the problem we need to face and deal with and uh, our guest daniel horowitz last evening really uh nailed this one is the uh structure of corporate america wants the cheapest labor that they can stuff into a little vest and a name tag absolutely and um i mentioned this special on the history channel uh, it was something i don't remember the title specifically but about um, the history of cars in america and one of the things that that's fascinating um about that was how henry ford improved the or pretty much uh, implemented the assembly lines i don't want to say improved he improved his own design later but when they go through the history of the the workers and the unions um and wages and whatnot they actually back in the day when when making two dollars and fifty cents a day was a lot of money henry ford implemented the five dollar day which was basically double what a middle class family was making back then which propelled many people into the middle and upper middle class you don't have companies like that doing this today here in america and especially the tech companies which are more of the types that are hiring right now um you see them getting the the out of the country talent brought in and that's one of the big issues with the h1 visas was it h1b h1 visas that allows all these people to come in from foreign countries to work um in the tech industry and that's mostly uh, where they go is to the um for less money than what americans make so it's not just americans not being able to find jobs as you said it's companies not willing to pay the proper wages that that um correspond with today's uh you know the cost of living and it's unfortunate, but that's where that's where we are today. Well, you know, it, Joe, if you think about it, uh, one would have to ask oneself, and we would need to get some human resources experts. And by the way, I don't particularly like that nomenclature, human resources. The, the, the two of those words together feel mm-hmm. a little Orwellian to me. But uh, if we uh, got some top-notch HR people on here, we could ask them this. How much does it cost, say, Google or IBM, to bring over a qualified applicant from Pakistan versus the same cost to nurture that individual through higher education, perhaps even having recruited them out of their junior or senior year in high school. It'd be uh, interesting to see a cost analysis of that. Yeah, it would, and I don't know what it will take to get wages to increase or get better-paying jobs just in general, but we see the uh, stock market whether it's real or not, is stronger than it has ever been, and that's subject to change on a day's basis. But uh, there are a lot of things. You know, we read yesterday, <clears throat> I think the story's still up here, median income highest in um, ever. And I don't know where that article went. I will look for it, but that didn't sound right to me, just in the way that we see things going um, 
economically in this country, and no matter how much growth we seem to get, we never see the the bottom line, our bottom line, increase. Um, moving on here real quick to ESPN. I've been wanting to talk about ESPN all week because football started last week, and I got a chance to watch a few games. I actually watched um, maybe five minutes of Monday Night Football, but I caught the Monday Night Football reporter who was either nervous or I don't know. Did you see that, Eric? I can't remember his name, but I read the story yesterday. And I thought at the time when I heard him talking, I'm like, what is he talking about? I thought I was the only one. But uh, we'll we'll talk about that more later. The reason I bring it up <laughs> is um, uh, Jameel Hill is a 6 a.m. Sports Center co-anchor. And he went on a Twitter, I don't know, he or she went on a Twitter rampage calling over 12 tweets calling Trump a white supremacist, basically. And our friend Kurt Schilling, who has his own show over at Breitbart, whatever it takes, I think it is, called, uh, he's been on the show several times, issued some very uh, interesting comments. And ESPN actually fired Kurt Schilling over uh, conservative comments. But they're letting, you know, all these other left-wing and liberal people uh, dish out their hate and their side of their the political opinion. And there is no consequences. I mean, you have a, a sports center reporter, you know, just right out on over Twitter, Donald Trump's a white supremacist. He helps white supremacists. He defends white supremacists. All these series of tweets, everyone obviously mentioning white supremacy. And, you know, here you have Kurt Schilling made some off-color remarks, and he gets fired. And we've seen other – we the, well, the Robert E. Lee the, What announcer, about Robert Lee? The, the guy could not – Robert <laughs> Lee, the announcer, because his name was so similar to Robert E. Lee, was pulled from a college football game in Virginia from um, announcing it. And it's just crazy. The, the liberals are allowed to say whatever they want. Anything a conservative says is hate speech, and you'll get fired. And this is a society that we live in today. You, you know, Joe, when we were doing the Hagman Daily Show last week, and we first uh, pulled that story on the uh, rescheduling of Robert Lee uh, from ESPN, uh, I really felt like we had we had just arrived at Clown Town. I mean, this poor guy, folks, he's Asian American. First of all, he was yeah. born he was born oh a comfortable hundred and seventy years after the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's crazy the. Um... The types of politics and, and whatnot that is going on over at ESPN, we see a huge decline in the ratings of the NFL, as well as the huge drop-off of subscriptions to ESPN, and they've had to lay off a number of people, and Disney is uh, re-examining, because Disney owns ESPN, they are re-examining that company and trying to figure out how to make it more, how to make it profitable again, and I say as long as you interject politics into the world of sports, it will never happen. Well, we, John, we have our, our guest with us, uh, Christian Saucier. He has just been uh, released from jail. He was the U.S. naval machinist mate who was serving on a nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Alexandria, in 2009. You know, uh, folks, I want to really encourage all of you to uh, sit back, really open your minds for this segment we are very blessed and very honored that Christian Saucier agreed to join us. He's been out of, of jail, uh, out of prison, really, for six days. Now, I just want to give you a quick rundown on who he was. I had the opportunity to speak with this gentleman uh, this afternoon, and, and I was honored to do so. Uh, a little bit about uh, Christian Saucier. He served as a first-class uh, uh, first petty officer uh, as a machinist mate. That was his MOS. Uh, he reenlisted twice and each time you do so you are technically discharged from the navy so he has two honorable discharges for each time that he reenlisted 
uh, and he uh, he had quite a service record, 11 years of service total, five of those years in uh, fast attack subs. He was deployed to the Middle East on two occasions. Uh, he has uh, been under CENTCOM on a number of occasions. That's the central command that uh, really runs the hotspot areas of the world. Uh, and, and when I asked him about his decorations, his, his, he became humbled. His voice got a little lower, and he said, well, and actually I had to ask him to repeat the names of them. But he uh, carries the Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Force decoration and two Navy Achievement Medals. Uh, this young man spent a lot of time in a fast attack sub protecting all of us. And uh, Christian, it is so great to have you join us here this evening. How are you, sir? All right. I'm, I'm glad to be out of prison, and thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me. Well, it is certainly, and I'll, I'll speak for Joe and, and for our production manager, Eric, and our director of social medias here in the studio as well. We are all honored that you chose to join us this evening. Welcome home. Uh, I know that you are a relatively new father, so now you'll have a chance to get to know your little two-year-old. And uh, we've got some pictures included in tonight's show notes uh, of you holding your little baby uh, in uniform when you were still serving. And uh, before we get started, I just, I, Christian, I just want uh, folks to really understand that you loved the Navy and you were committed to, to pulling a full 20, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I, I was uh, re-enlisted out to my 12-year mark, and I fully intended on staying and passed that. And with, just with the, the, the few decorations that we mentioned by way of introduction to you, um, I got the sense when we spoke earlier today that you took your job fairly seriously. In fact, I get the sense overall that there's not a lot of room for uh, horseplay on a fast attack sub. No, yeah, I mean, pretty much everything you do, you know, if you mess up, you know, people die or, you know, it, really bad things happen. So it's a it's a pretty demanding job. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed it and I'm very proud of it. You know, not not everybody gets the chance to do what I did, so it's definitely something to be proud of. It is, and indeed you should be, and we're all proud of you, sir. Uh, you know, I made the comment to the team here before we went on air, I'm thrilled just to be conducting an interview with a submariner. I mean, I think I made this comment to you when we spoke off air earlier, Christian, but what man between the age of about eight years old and dead doesn't find submarines interesting? Oh, yeah, they're real interesting. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's definitely something. I mean, my, when I was a, a kid, my, my uncle worked at electric boat building submarines in, in Groton, so I got to tour one when I was a little kid, and from then on out, that's what I wanted to do. Christian, I got a question for you. Kind of way yeah. out of left field. It has nothing to do with anything. So when you're in a submarine and you guys submerge, they are obviously adjust the pressure in there. Do you, do you get your ears popping and, and things like that? Uh, oh yeah, it's on like uh, being yeah. on an airplane and you get the pressure okay. changes and your ears pop and everything. Yep. And, and one more question on that. When you come back up, you have to come back up at a certain pace or uh, depressurize properly or else bad things can happen. Is that, is that accurate? Well, no, I mean, you come up pretty fast, you know. It, in, in any okay. case where bad things happen, they can come up fast if they have to. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the pressures have to equalize and everything like that, yeah. Well, Chris, sorry for the weird questions. But. <laughs> no, no, oh, I, that's actually, okay. that's okay. when, when it comes to weird questions, I've, I've got to jump in a little bit as well. Well, I'll uh, tell you just a funny story. My mom asked me when I first started <laughs> serving on the submarines, she said, so, do they have windows on there? I said, no, it's not like, you know, when you watch 20,000 <laughs> Leagues Under the Sea and there's squid attacking and everything like that. So, nothing like that. 
it's it's not like that that great old ride at at Disneyland. No, uh, no. no, but but seriously, Christian, uh, I'll I'll throw you this curveball and then we'll get down to business. Uh, in all of the great submarine stories and and certainly all of the great submarine movies, whenever they go into defense mode, usually the story is the same. They they torpedo. Uh, a freighter or another man of war, and then they've got to go deep, and they've got to be very quiet. That always made sense to me. What I never understood is what's the deal with the red light? How come if they're so deep oh. underwater they need to go red lights? Well, I mean that's usually for when they come up to periscope depth. So that the on the old submarines, the periscopes, you know, were a series of mirrors and magnifying glasses. So in control room, if they had regular lights on, it would travel at the scope, and then the enemy would be able to detect them from the reflection of it. So that's why they go red. All right, Christian. Um, we got uh, about five minutes before the break, and okay. I want you to kind kind of uh, I want you to tell this story, and I want you to start wherever you want to. Um, but uh, if you want to give us a, in the next five minutes, give us a, a rundown of uh, everything from why you joined the Navy to what happened um, on that day where you took the pictures, and anything and everything in between. All right. Uh, well, let me let me just start off by saying, you know, I, I've always been really patriotic and I was actually in high school I remember the day when I uh when when September 11th happened and I was in high school and I watched the towers fall and after that I I knew I wanted to join the military and I wanted to serve my country and and make a difference and uh I actually did four years in JROTC in high school and I was the battalion commander of uh, my JROTC so I I always had intentions of joining the military and uh it just so happened that you know a navy recruiter came up to me and said hey you can you can do this job where you can operate nuclear power plants. And I said, wow, that sounds awesome. And he said, yeah, you can do it on a submarine. I said, oh, sign me up, you know. So that's uh, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, I, I went to school, and I, and I graduated from nuclear power school, and I went to uh, get stationed on a submarine in Groton in 2007. And I, needless to say, you know, I, I was pretty proud of what I did and, and um, of where I, I, you know, I'd worked really hard to get to. And I... Uh, was pretty junior on the submarine when um, when I took the pictures. It was in 2009, and uh, you know, <clears throat> I took them with I I I think the right intentions. Don't get me wrong. What I did, you know, in retrospect, is I shouldn't have done it, and it was stupid. But it was done with you know, it was kind of a command environment at the place at that time. You know, I wasn't the only one doing it. Uh, other people were taking pictures, and, and not for any bad or nefarious purposes. They were taking them because they were proud of of what we did, you know, and it was something to be able to look back on later and say, wow, I did this, I was here. Um, and, you know, it ended up in 2011, shortly before mine, my case um, started in 2012, two other guys on, on my same ship that were on there with me uh, <clears throat> took pictures in the same area and got in trouble. Um, they both, you know, got uh, captain's master, which is non-judicial punishment. So basically our commanding officer punished him and he gave him a $200 fine for taking pictures in the same area. And uh, they both have gone on and had great careers. They're still in the Navy and one of them even became an officer. Um, so, you know, when I got approached by FBI and NCIS in 2012, I said, oh man, well, you know, thinking in my head, this is the worst that's going to happen, you know, is what happened to these guys, you know, because they got to look at it and say, look, this, th- these weren't taken with any malintent. Um, unfortunately, you know, as history proves it, it didn't go that way for me. And um, so <clears throat> we find ourselves, you know, here where um, it ended up being a big core thing. And, um, 
you know, I pled guilty because, you know, what I, I admitted to what I did. I said, you know, I, I shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. And they threw the book at me, you know, and I got a year in prison. And uh, I, I still have seven more months of uh, house arrest. And uh, and then I have three years of probation. Um, and then I also got an other than honorable discharge from the Navy. So I actually was, uh, before I got discharged, the VA gave me a disability rating of uh, over 70%. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not able to get any uh, disability or any medical treatment or anything like that because of the discharge that they gave me. So even though I have the two honorable discharges, you know, it kind of uh, kind of makes it null and void with what uh, what I got on the way out. So that's kind of uh, kind of where I'm at now. You know, folks, I just want to reiterate uh, what uh, our guest, Christian Saucier, just shared with us. Now, 11 years uh, serving our country in the United States Navy, nuclear submarines no less, he receives an other-than-honorable discharge. Now, that that disables him, with no pun intended, from, from receiving his disability uh, benefits or any other VA benefits. Now, this man has a family, and they seem like a, a, a decent family living up in the Northeast. If you feel so inclined, visit HagmanReport.com. Uh, we do a great write-up every evening. The title of tonight's show, uh, Snapshots or Espionage. So just uh, go to that uh, write-up. Click on Christian's name, and there is the ability to uh, to help his family out a little bit if you feel so inclined. And I'm especially calling out to the veterans out there. Uh, I'll bet I'll bet even five bucks here and there would make a difference when you've got a two-year-old and you're six six days out of. Uh, Imprisonment that should have never happened to begin with. Yeah, and and Christian, we got about a minute till break, but I read that your cars have been repossessed and your house was in foreclosure. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I mean we we've got a lot of debt as a result of uh, of all this, you know. So it's going to take me a long time to dig myself out of mm-hmm. it. But I'm I'm pretty positive that once I can, you know, get off house arrest and actually start working and uh, making a living, hopefully we can get back on the right track. You know, it's it's going to be an uphill battle. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but. Uh, now that I'm out of prison, obviously I can I can do something. I couldn't do anything in there to to better ourselves or you know be a contributing member of society again. But hopefully, well, Christian, you know, we're, yeah. we're right up against the break. Uh, when okay. we come back, we're going to break down your story a little bit and ask you some questions uh, about what you went through, what it was like, and um, kind of break it down a little bit more. And we'll continue, folks, to give out that website. If you go again to HagmanReport.com and click on the link that the hyperlink on Christian Saucier's name it will take you to a page youcaring.com there you can help him and his family out and we'll talk more about this on the other side folks you're listening to the Hagman Report we will be right back Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. 
Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced, Blue Wink Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. Uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. back ladies and gentlemen to this segment number two on this edition of the Hagman Report we have Christian Saucier uh, and we're going to get back to him and his story uh, he was a sailor who was put in jail for almost a year for taking pictures on a submarine when his uh, co-workers were uh, doing the same thing and are still in the Navy we're going to break that down a little bit but first we have a quick word from one of our sponsors Casper Mattresses Doug Hagman checking in from Branson, Missouri, where I'm with Steve Quayle, Pastor David Langford, and others. Oh, I miss being on the air with you live. However, I miss my Casper mattress. Perhaps most of all, I miss the beautiful sleep that the Casper mattress provides. I was telling my wife that uh, nothing, and she agrees, nothing compares to the Casper mattress that we've got. Folks, Casper is a sleep brand that created an outrageously comfortable mattress that's sold directly to the consumers. That's you and I. No middleman, no showroom, no inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house. It's got a great sleep design, and it comes to you. It's delivered in this really small, how did they do that? How did they get that mattress in their sized box? 
Now, in addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. You'll love those, too. I know my wife and I do as well. And they also have pet beds. Ask Lady how she likes hers. You know, the Casper, it's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's affordable because they sell directly to consumers. And did you know they've got free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada? Get a 100-night trial with free, no-hassle returns if you're not happy. You know, they've got over 20,000 reviews with an average 4.8 stars. It's quickly becoming the Internet's most favorite mattress. That's based on Casper, Amazon, and Google reviews. It's designed, developed, and assembled right here in the United States. Folks, visit casper.com slash CFP radio. That's casper.com slash CFP radio. Stands for Canada Free Press Radio. That's casper.com CFP radio. And use the promo code CFP radio. That's right. Promo code CFP radio toward, well, you'll get $50 toward your purchase toward a mattress. You cannot beat that. Even at that shockingly fair price they're offering this to our listeners that's casper.com slash cfp radio with a promo code cfp radio again i miss the studio i miss oh i miss eric i miss the studio dog and i miss you folks but i do miss my casper our guest is christian saucier and we uh he's the young navy sailor who was imprisoned for taking a photo on uh the submarine that he worked on and and christian before the break you you kind of um told a quick version of your story i want to ask you this so you said that other people on the submarine co-workers and, and whatnot were taking pictures as well um what happened that this the fbi was brought in is it was that the first line of of questioning that you uh were up against Oh, yeah. I mean, it, they went right towards that. You know, I was questioned by uh, NCIS and the FBI together at the same time. Uh, that was the first interaction that I heard that, you know, my phone had been found with the photos on it. And they were, you know, investigating me for, you know, a whole slew of things, you know. And and, and just I, I kind of was taken aback by it, you know, when they they sat me down and said, we're investigating for this. Just, you got to be kidding me, you know. You know, you, you got to look at this. You know, I, the, I know your listeners can't see me, but I have USN tattooed on my arm. I have, you know, my warfare pin tattooed on my arm. I'm, I'm extremely proud. You know, I have an American flag on my arm as well. Uh, I said, you, you got to be kidding me. You know, they, you, you got the wrong guy. And they clearly didn't believe that. You know, they didn't for a second stop and think, well, wait a second, you know? Yeah, and, and if we can, just let's back up a little bit. Um the you said that you you have not you acknowledged that you made a mistake and you tried to you threw the phone away and that's where they they found it so what led up to that you took the pictures um then what happened what happened after you took the pictures that led to law enforcement involvement and you throwing the phone away well the phone they they they're the ones who uh found the phone and uh i i don't know exactly how that happened they they found it at the dump so you know, in 2009, I uh, I took the photos, and then, you know, on my cell phone, and then I had the cell phone, um, but, you know, I had gotten a new cell phone since, so it, was no, it wasn't like it was still the phone I was using, and, and then it got found at the dump, and then I, all of a sudden I'm getting interviewed by the FBI and NCIS. That's kind of how it happened for me. And then, you know, they, they sat me down, and they um, 
interrogated me and basically said that they were investigating me for espionage and for being, you know, for terrorism and all this other stuff. And and that's kind of the point where I said, okay, well, you know, these guys aren't going to be reasonable with me. And so I, you know, I, I talked to a lawyer and, and, you know, it kind of went from there. After that, they, they said, labeled me as uncooperative and, and whatnot. But that was still, that was still in 2012. I didn't actually, they investigated me. They raided my house a couple times. Um, and everything, and, it, and the investigation went on for almost four years before I actually got indicted. Um, so it was, you know, my wife and I um, got kicked out of our house after they raided it, so we ended up living in a campground for almost a year um, before I got arrested. So, you know, it, it's... So you didn't share the photographs, post them anywhere? No. You just discarded no. the phone, and that's how somebody came across it. Yeah. Found the pictures and then knew enough to, to say, hey, what is this? That seems yeah, it, a little it, odd. Yeah, it seemed. I mean, it seemed a little fishy to me too. I mean, but like I said, I don't. I don't want to guess as to how it managed to. You know, this person at a, at the dump managed to find this phone in the middle of a forty cubic yard dumpster, apparently, and um, knew enough looking at the photos to to contact a retired Navy chief and ask him what they were, and then that's how you know NCIS says they got involved, and then because it was found outside of the Navy, FBI got involved, and they started, you know, making it into being this uh, big espionage, you know, so it was FBI counterintelligence task force, and everybody got involved, so, you know, they come at, they came at me guns blazing, you know, it wasn't just like, I sit down with my command and said, hey, what, what's going on here, it was, they kind of said, okay, this is where it's going, and it just, it went from zero to a hundred like that, you know. You know, uh, Christian, as I listen to your story, and, and when we did our pre-brief uh, earlier today, uh, it sounds like there are intersections in your story where things, uh, to, 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 to make an understatement, uh, proper protocol was discarded. Now, you explained to me, and you mentioned earlier in your remarks, that for the infraction that you freely admit that you did as a young sailor, um, uh, you, you explained it to me. You said, you know, military guys want to have a few pictures for memories, and I, I think you even used the example of uh, maybe somebody standing next to the tank they served on or whatever. And, and of course, we've all seen those in our relative scrapbooks and photo albums and whatnot. Uh, but you admit that you, you know, you uh, create, you made an infraction, and typically that should should uh, you should be sent to your commanding officer, correct? This is, see, to, to me, yeah. this is where the story gets, starts, this is where the story starts to stink and get ugly. Folks, uh, it was called, I believe you said, uh, the captain's mast, to use kind of some old nomenclature. Um, yeah. and you, you should have been, uh, uh, referred to your commanding officer, who would then determine the infraction and mete out, uh, appropriate punishment. Now, explain to our listeners what happened to you instead of that. Instead of that, uh, my command just basically said, "Okay, this is it. You're go- you're going to talk to these guys." And I and it was actually where they interrogated me was at my uh, command. And I didn't have a command representative there or anything. They kind of said, "Okay, this is it." And the FBI and NCIS said, "Yep, we're investigating you for uh, taking these photos with malicious intent." And I, and and. Uh, you know, it went completely gung ho. You know, usually within the military, not just the Navy, there's a procedure called handling things at the lowest level possible. So whenever possible, you know, like you said, it would be handled by the commanding officer, and you know, worst case scenario, be recommended to the judge advocate general for a court martial. Because being active duty, 
it should have never went to the civilian courts, and never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would ever go to that. You know, be, even if they really wanted to nail me to the cross, they could have done it through the judicial system within the military. The you know they could have court-martialed me. Um, now, now, Christian, but, I'm sorry. Let me yep. let me just let me pause you there because this is important that folks understand this. You were in a very strange conundrum, and this is this is where I began to grow very concerned for you for your plight. This is where it seems like justice started to become kind of a political witch hunt, and we'll get into the whole Hillary Clinton thing here in a moment. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were an active uh, member, active service personnel in the United States Navy. However, you're being investigated by the FBI outside of the Judge Advocate General, JAG, and you're actually now going to be tried, or you're, you're, you're going to be presented, uh, you know, evidentiary findings, etc., in a civilian court. I, that that doesn't add up, Christian. Can you help me out with that? Oh, oh and I honestly, want to mention one other thing. One other oh, thing, yeah. and and this is important, folks. Christian couldn't speak on his own behalf. That's why when you see pieces on big platforms like Sean Hannity, for example, uh, it's often Christian's wife or mother uh, conducting the interviews because Christian was being, uh, pardon the pun, he was being a good soldier. He was being a good sailor, and he was. Uh, uh, maintaining his oath uh, not to speak against the commander-in-chief, for example, when this thing got political and ugly, not to speak against the United States Navy, not to speak in any way, shape, or form about the missions that he had participated in. I just wanted to make that point very clear for our listeners and viewers, but uh, Christian, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, you know, I I think if you ask my opinion on it, looking back on it now, you know, at the time I was just overwhelmed and it was just very overwhelming the whole situation i just couldn't believe that i was in it you know um but looking back on it now i think that the reason they went about it the way they did was as clear to me is that they never intended me to be able to put up a defense for instance let's say they did court-martial me i would have been appointed a a judge advocate general lawyer a jag and that would have been free of, of charge because it would have been handled through the military so i would have been able to present a legal defense without bankrupting myself and they didn't want that. They wanted it to go to a civilian court. One, because civilian courts are able to be publicized, whereas judge, you know, JAG or um, court marshals are closed usually to the public, and that wouldn't have fit the narrative that the Obama administration wanted. They wanted to to make an example of me, and they wanted to look like they were cracking down on people that mishandled classified information, you know, unless they were Hillary Clinton or one of their cronies. But they they went after me in the way that they did. Because they they knew that if if they took me to a civilian court, one I couldn't advocate for myself in the public media because as long as they kept me in the Navy, which they did for you know four five years while they were investigating me, um, they I couldn't go on national media and speak out and say hey what they're doing to me is wrong and draw national attention to it. I couldn't provide a legal defense. You know we spent every bit of money. I, I um, liquidated all of our our retirements. I you know, all of our savings, everything. And then I maxed out credit cards trying to pay for my legal offense. You know, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on a legal offense, and I didn't even go to trial. And they knew that it was going to cost that. That's why they, they took me to civilian court, because in civilian court, even though you're military, a JAG won't represent you. Um, so the military doesn't have to appoint you a lawyer. And unfortunately for me, um, being an E6, I made just above the threshold. I think it's $40,000 that you don't, our annual income, that you don't, you can't get appointed a public defender, which I tried to. Um, and they wouldn't allow me to have one. So I had to pay out of pocket for a private attorney. And so that's 
kind of the reason why they did that, you know. And from the time that I was arrested to the time that I got sentenced, it was almost 18 months of court battle, and it wasn't even a trial. There was never even a trial. It was just that was how they drew it out. So they, they, you know, every time I went to court, it cost me a lot of money, and they knew that. So not only was it designed to penalize me in the sense that, yeah, I went to prison and yeah, I'm a felon now, and you know, I got kicked out of the navy, but it was designed to bankrupt my family because we, you know, my my family sold off property. We we did it just about everything we could until we had no more money left. And as a matter of fact, I, you know, I got a bill from my attorney uh, that I had at the time right before going to prison for another eight thousand dollars, which, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay. But you know, it's it's just I think that was their goal was to make sure that I was one, you know, quiet about it and that I didn't speak out, and two, to make sure that I couldn't provide a legal defense because, you know, on the military side of it, when I got my my other than honorable discharge um, from an administrative board, I did have a JAG for that, and my JAG was excellent, you know, and he represented me the best he could. And, you know, I, I wish I could have had him at a court-martial trial because I think that it would have went great. But it, unfortunately, you know, it got to the point where we had no more money and I couldn't afford to go to trial. Um, and, you know, and I was I was willing to accept guilt, you know, and that, that was the, a touchy subject for me because I didn't want to go to trial and, and argue that I didn't do it I didn't think that I should have been charged with what I got charged with. You know, I mean, other people at the same time, for instance, uh, Brian Nishimura um, mishandled top secret information, uh, and General Petraeus uh, mishandled top secret information. My information that I I had on my phone was confidential, which is the lowest uh, tier of classification. Um, you know, those other gentlemen, they, they mishandled far higher security material, and they, they were able to be charged with misdemeanors, and neither one of them did any prison time. Well, so, Christian, yeah. it, doesn't the fact that Hillary Clinton had had no criminal intent, doesn't that oh, yeah. help her case? <laughs> no. No, because no, there, no, there was never an argument, so that was one of the most, uh, I'll tell you, one of the most aggravating things, because I was sitting at home waiting to go to prison. I'd already been sentenced, and I, I watched uh, Comey say on television, you know, exonerating Hillary Clinton, saying, well, she, she didn't have intent, so even though she mishandled classified information, she had no intent. Well, I didn't have intent to to cause national harm. I simply was taking pictures. You know, I mean, it, yeah, I mishandled it. Just like, I mean, I, I wouldn't say just like because she had 30,000 emails that she clearly had intent to bleach bit and, and to move over to a private server. But I had no malintent. You know, that was never a, a requirement for them charging me. And when he said no reasonable prosecutor would bring a case against her, I said, well, I know one. <laughs> You know? Well, you uh, look, at, at the end of the day, Christian, you made a mistake. And yeah. you've, you've manned up, uh, at 30 years old now, new father, recently, uh, reunited with your family. A good, good looking family, by the way. Uh, thank you. Folks, we received, uh, some pictures from, uh, Bill McIntosh from Ocaso Media. And by the way, uh, Bill, uh, just personally from me to you, brother, thank you so much for what you do for the Hagman Report. Uh, folks, Bill McIntosh, Ocaso Media, brings great guests to the program like Christian Saucier. So I just want to give a little shout out to Bill. But uh, but Christian, uh let's let's talk about how let's talk about how this got mucked up politically because what I'm hearing if if I'm hearing you correctly and I always tend to err a little bit on the side of the dramatic, okay? But it sounds like all you wanted to do was have a fair day in court where you could admit guilt, essentially throw yourself on the mercy of the court, hope that based on your age, your service record, and the relatively minor nature of the infraction, 
that you could it could maybe even be reprimanded, maybe be not knocked down a rank or two, maybe even uh, retain your naval career, something that you had 11 years invested in. Uh, folks, remember, the man you're listening to went to war, okay? He was deployed under CENTCOM twice to, to hot spots in the Middle East in a fast attack sub. That's serious business. That's putting your very life on the line for this country. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Christian, basically you were kept from your day in court by an overzealous prosecutor military bungling uh, bu- bureaucratic bungling and the war- the part that really uh, chaps my hide you ran out of money you simply couldn't get you you literally didn't have the funds to get yourself into court and so you so the whole, the whole thing just sort of unraveled from there if if i'm hearing you correctly yeah i mean that's that, that's correct you know i mean it like don't don't get me wrong. I don't want to come off like I'm not accepting responsibility. I made a I made a stupid mistake, and I accepted responsibility for that. And I was always willing to accept responsibility for that. But you know, how can my my issue with it is is how can um, the Justice Department go after me with so much fervor and then completely avoid people like Huma Abedin or John Podesta or Hillary Clinton for what they did? You know. I, other, the only explanation I can have, and I, I, I watched the news in prison, and I watched her complain about how it was unfair, and say, "Well, you know, I'm sorry for it. Isn't that okay?" Or, you know, just get over it. And it, and it, it just really upset me. You know, how can how can Hillary Clinton say all these things? How can Bill Clinton meet with the then acting uh, Attorney General on an airplane tarmac, and everybody just accept that as well? That's just the way it is. You know, how is that the, the head prosecutor in the country meeting with the targeted investigation spouse not, in, in a, you know, an issue? And um, it, it was just aggravating for me, you know, because here it's I am, somebody who's, yeah, I mean, here I am a patriot. My whole family's patriots. We're all proud to be American. And and we were put through the ringer in this situation. You know, money, you know, money is what it is. Well, you know, you can always make money back. But our family was put through the ringer. And here... And, and we've all been patriots and we've all given, my wife and I both were volunteer firefighters. We, we, we give back to the community. And, and here's this person, Hillary Clinton, who, uh, her and her husband have done nothing but rob the American public, you know, blind. And, you know, they said at one point that the streets were paved in gold in Washington, D.C. And that's what they're all about. And, and she let people die in Benghazi, those innocent people that she could have prevented died because of her inaction. And a person like that, in the eyes of the Justice Department of this country is allowed to walk, whereas patriots like me are prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And I think people should really, I hope if nothing else people see from my case is that they see that, that there's really an issue in this country with, you know, the way the Justice Department does business. If they're allowed to do that and just go after people and then let wealthy uh, people that have done nothing for this country as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, hurt it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's if you're in that that point oh one percent, then you just slide right through. But the the current powers that be, the federal government, what I like to sometimes call the central government, seems to have no qualms whatsoever with watching a good man. Okay, this gentleman you've been listening to for the last forty five minutes, Christian Saucier, is a good man. Okay, I would buy him a steak any night of the week. He served his country with distinction. He's decorated. He went in uh, submarines into uh, a scary and potentially deadly environments. This guy's this guy's I I know the word is often overused, but this guy's he's a hero, not a criminal. 
he's admitted his mistake. Um, you haven't, and I appreciate this, Christian, you haven't tried to obfuscate or uh, in any way diminish what you did. You, you, you were, what, 20-something, five, six years old? You made a stupid mistake. And, again, the part that I want to reemphasize, and I'll make this my final comment. Joe will have something to say, and then we'll give you the last few minutes. Folks, uh, I would really appreciate it if you would go to HagmanReport.com. Simply go to uh, the title of tonight's show, Snapshots or Espionage, Christian Saucier, Peter Barry Chaka, and Carl Van, uh, Charles Van Wick. Click on Christian's name. The first time he's listed, there is a link. Click on that link. I just did it myself during break. Uh, Christian, I dropped you a few bucks. I hope it helps. Um, really, uh, help help this family out, folks. They served. Uh, they're having a tough time. Christian is a proud man, and uh, and he doesn't want to make a big issue out of this tonight, but I am willing to make an issue out of it, and, and I would personally appreciate it if, if the Hagman Report uh, uh, listeners and viewers would help this uh, this military family out. Joe? Yeah, uh, Christian, we only got about uh, three and a half minutes left. Um why don't you tell people a little bit about, I know you got a, a long seven-month house arrest. What are you looking forward to doing now that you're home and uh, and when you get off house arrest? Do you have any plans yet? Uh, well, no, and honestly, I've been putting out job applications everywhere because, you know, it's difficult now that I'm a felon and uh, I got a bad discharge from the military. You know, it kind of puts, taints, you know, taints the individual. You know, people see me as this criminal and, and, and it's difficult. I think I'll be able to get over it eventually and hopefully be able to find myself a job you know i have my commercial driver's license so maybe i'll be able to find a job doing something in that in that uh, department um pretty much everything that i did in the navy all those skills that's kind of useless now based based on the fact that i'm a felon i can't really do that outside of the navy unfortunately but i'll figure it out you know uh i i'm a survivor and you know i've I've been through tougher times than this and my family will make it As, as long as we have each other that's all that really matters and you know, I really hope that, um, you know, people will reach out and, and ask President Trump to, you know, he, he talked about me a lot. I know we haven't really talked much about it on the show yet. Yeah, but let's jump into the that. Yeah. The last two minutes we have, the, the emotional roller coaster uh, that you mentioned yeah. that you were on when it, the issue was brought up during the campaign. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I watched uh, candidate Trump uh, bring up my case, and my, my lawyer actually met with uh a representative of the Trump team before the election at Trump Tower, and they said, you know, if if we get into office, we're going to make right the wrong that happened to your son, and uh, you know, and and basically, so you know, we had a lot of hope, and and while in prison, I saw him commenting on on my case and saying, you know, this is wrong on Hannity, and and Sean Hannity really took the ball and and pushed my case real hard about the injustice that happened, and and I'm really appreciative to him for that. Um, you know, and I just hope that President Trump is listening and that he'll he'll uh, help my family out. I think the most important thing to me, it's, it's not money, it's not anything, you know, they can't change the fact that I'm proud of my service to my country, and whatever's on paper won't change that. But if if I could get a pardon, you know, I, I served my year, you know, I, I took my punishment. If I could get a pardon and, and be able to restore my good name and, and be able to go on with life, that would that would definitely be a step in the right direction. So, you know, you I, know I Christian- hope... I'm yeah. sorry. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Oh, I, I, I know that's fine. I, I just, I, I hope that um, you know President Trump. I, I know he's capable of doing it, and you know I'm so ecstatic that he got elected and not Hillary Clinton. I mean, oh, and honestly, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, I know it's 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 kind of messed up to say because you know it, what my family went through and stuff. But if if what the misfortune that happened to my family 
somehow affected some people seeing the double standard in this country and help people make the right choice at the election booth, then I'm I'm grateful for that. You know what well, I mean? Well, and and I'm grateful for that. On on uh, thank you for the part for the role that you played in that, Christian. Uh, we we're running out of time here, sir. I want to thank you for your gift of time this evening. Number one, number two. Uh, we're going to stay with this case, so to speak. We're going to follow up with you, with your permission. Would you like to come back and join us uh, a little little later down the road and, and uh, give us an update on how things are going and, and how life is coming back together for you? Sure, sure. And, folks, the uh, site for the fundraising, it's uh, www.uyoucaring.com backslash fundraiser hyphen 758 zero nine six or you can get the link at Hagman Report on the uh, show page for today and click Christian's name and that will take you to the page also. Christian thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on in the future and we hope everything goes well for you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Folks we'll be right back after this network break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman Report. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. But what Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right? You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. A Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an M.O.K. For investors, Timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash... 
trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. PreciousTimberProfits.com. To hour number two on this edition of Hagman Report, we got a, a great guest coming up, Peter Chauka. He is the uh, journalist and author. He writes for American Thinker as well as his own website. And for Hagman Report, his piece on 9-11 this week was picked up by Michael Savage uh, on Michael's new website, michaelsavage.com. And there might be a few other pieces that, that Savage picked up. I know Peter has written quite a few in the last few days, and those are on hagmanreport.com. Uh, just a few headlines before we get to Peter. There was an attempted or a terrorist attack in France today. A man shouting Allah Akbar attacked um, police officers in, I want to say this right, Toulouse, France. And uh, this is the latest in a series of just ongoing terror attacks that we've seen coming out of, of Europe. man shouting Allah Akbar attacked seven people, including three police officers in France. A former psychiatric patient viciously punched four passerbys in the French city. Uh, the enraged man, 42, began beating shoppers at around 4 p.m. Police, who were only meters away, swooped in and arrested the furious man as he was, uh, you know, screaming, God is great in Islam. And, you know, at the same time, I read this story where we have this leader in the UK, I gotta get her name, she is saying, a British MP, country would be better if whites learned from Muslims. Conservative MP Anne Sulbury said the UK would be a better place if those pesky white people would just learn more from Muslims. And this is in the con- in a country where you see constant attacks from, terror attacks from Muslims on citizens. And they continue to shield these terrorists and, you know, basically blame the victims in these um, terror attacks and in society as Europe, as everybody will tell you, has just become a cesspool of illegal migration, illegal immigration, and terrorism. And it's continuing to get worse and worse and worse. Um, I don't know, John. What do you think? The Islamic invasion. uh, Here you have another terror attack. Then you have the, the British MP Anna Sorbery telling white people in the UK that it would they would be better if they could just learn more from muslims. Oh, this is this is clearly there's only one way to define this and uh it goes back to a conversation I was privileged to have with uh, a Hagman Report regular guest John McTiernan uh back in May and he and I discussed this. How can there be such delusion over people who have been to higher education, people who have made a lot of money in the private sector, people who have made big names for themselves, either in media or the fake stream news, etc. How can there be such delusion 
where we can go on YouTube and we can see the optics of homosexuals being thrown off 10-story buildings in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, or Tehran, Iran, and yet the LGBTQP34Z uh, consortium in this country it wants to embrace Islam and has all their little chants about how Islam is welcome here. How can this be happening? And the only way that you can cinch this all up, the only way that it makes sense, is that Satan is a liar, a cheat, a counterfeiter, a thief, and a murderer. And I personally feel that Islam is Satan's greatest masterpiece. And what we're seeing in the headlines in every single news cycle is delusion that is satanic in nature from the father of chaos and lies. Absolutely. This is a story that's being underreported in the news. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. Democratic Seattle Mayor Ed Murray resigning Tuesday after more allegations of child sexual abuse surfaced. He was he had uh, uh, victims and abusers coming forward before he was elected, after the election, and after he was in office. And I think there was four or five people that came forward separately. And after the fifth or sixth one, he finally resigned. Uh, there's a great article on Daily Wire, Multiple Democrats Currently Involved in Child Sex Scandals. And it goes on to talk about a pattern, a disturbing pattern of Democratic politicians involved in crimes and allegations of child sexual abuse largely ignored by the media. They start off with the Seattle Mayor Ed Murray as the first one. They go on to Anthony Weiner, get into Jacob Schwartz, who was 29. He was an assistant for Mayor de Blasio. He was arrested on child pornography charges in May. Uh, Democratic New Jersey Senator Robert Mendez, currently on trial facing federal corruption charges, which started in 2012 over allegations he and another man were having sex with underage prostitutes. And then the Daily Wire goes on uh, to start a list of other uh, Democrats who have been recently involved in child prostitution, trafficking, and, and sexual abuse. And then they even go on to talk about Jeffrey Epstein and others. Uh, so, very important story there. We have with us our hour two guest, Peter Chowka. Uh, Peter, it's great to have you back on. Uh, you've been doing a lot of uh, great reporting. Uh, what, where do you want to start tonight? Well, thank you, Joe, and thank you, John. It's great to be with you. Uh, let me just start with this little factoid, which came up a couple of hours ago. Uh, I was watching Fox News, and they presented the results of two brand-new public opinion polls on the subject of single-payer health care. And I know there was an article at uh, the Hagman Report today on, I believe, Bernie Sanders and a number of Democrats uh, going on the record saying we have to have single-payer health care in this country. Yeah, Hillary said that today in an interview. Yeah, they're all falling in line. Uh, apparently, all of the major potential presidential candidates on the Democratic side for 2020 are coming in line to support uh, single-payer socialized communist medicine, which is what it really is. I mean, single-payer sounds good, but it's really uh, the hammer and the sickle in the uh, medical waiting room. But anyway, there are two new polls out today, or that were cited today by Fox. One, the Pew poll claimed that 60% of Americans believe it's the government, the federal government's responsibility to provide health care. And going along with that, a brand new Quinnipiac poll found uh, when asking Americans, do you support single payer? 
51% said yes, and 38% said no. So uh, we see the balance shifting. I mean, for decades in this country, Americans opposed socialized medicine and anything coming close to single payer. But now that the Democrats are riding it hard and giving it new friendly-sounding names like single-payer or Medicare for all, and they have a, a warm and fuzzy avuncular character like Bernie Sanders pitching it, and all the others like Kamala Harris, um, Hillary Clinton now, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, God help us if we get a Democrat majority in Congress next year and a Democrat in the White House elected in 2020, we are in for it because, as I've said before, single-payer socialized medicine is going to be one of the last nails in the coffin of our freedom overall and certainly our medical freedom in this country or what's left of it. Absolutely. You know, uh, folks, our uh, very special guest this hour is Peter Barry Chaka, and we love Peter. Uh, he's a, such a prolific writer. Uh, we found his work a long time ago at American Thinker. A uh, special shout-out to uh, Thomas Lifson over at American Thinker. Uh, who introduced us to Peter. And uh, Peter has been writing for Hagman Report as well. Uh, but, you know, Peter, uh, I just wanted to quote Mark Twain as I listen to you speak, particularly with this Pew poll. Mark Twain once famously said, there are, lo- there are uh, statistics, I'm sorry, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. <laughs> There's another great quote along those lines. Uh, Figures don't lie. But liars can figure. <laughs> so. Well, what I'm figuring at this time as I listen to you kind of go down this coterie of, uh, of the, uh, the Bernie Sanders and the Kamala Harris's, if you will, uh, Peter, doesn't, don't, doesn't the DNC basically need some new players at this point? I mean, this, consider this. They, they, they have almost no national voices who are not under some suspicion or should be under indictment or have uh, significant evidence that's piled up around their political careers. The corruption is so rampant in the DNC, uh, it's almost like it, the, 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 the party itself has become, become so infested that rather than call pest control, maybe they need to just burn down the house and start fresh. <laughs> Well, actually, they do. They have a lot of uh, old horses there, and Bernie Sanders would be the leading one, of course. Although, I've seen other public opinion polls which claim that Bernie Sanders is uh, supposedly the highest rated, the most popular politician in the United States right now, which probably isn't saying a whole lot. But uh, the Democrats are uh, are putting out there, are ready to put out there, a new generation of candidates, and the one that worries me the most is Kamala Harris in California. Uh, she's a brand new senator from California, and she is a radical. Plus, she's presenting herself much like Barack Hussein Obama did, uh, claiming to be biracial, African American, attractive, obviously intelligent, accomplished woman. It's interesting, though, she claims to be African American when her mother is from India, the subcontinent of India in Asia, South Asia. And her father, she claims, is African-American, but he's actually from Jamaica. So really, if she wants to be accurate, you think she would say she's uh, half Jamaican-American and half Indian-American. But, of course, African-American sounds and sells better. 
but uh, she's a radical and she's uh, taking a big page out of Obama's playbook. I mean, he came out of nowhere too, and as a first-term senator, the rest is history. Another one they've got uh, in waiting there is Cory Booker, the uh, fully African-American senator from New Jersey. They're the Castro brothers from Texas. One of them served in, I believe, Obama's cabinet. The other one is mayor of some city in Texas, and they're ready to roll. And, of course, they've got the uh, the Latino uh, American angle there. And then also in New York State, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, the uh, Caucasian senator from New York, who uh, took over the seat vacated by Hillary Clinton, and uh, Kirsten, there, there's a lot of buzz about her. In fact, I saw an article last week, I believe in Politico, which claimed that the uh, dream ticket for the Democrats in 2020 would be Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket and Kirsten Gillibrand as vice presidential candidate. So, again, any of these names just uh, yeah, chill uh, my Camilla blood. Yeah, um I'd say a more, uh, you know, she's a, was she Hispanic, I believe? Uh, Senator. No, she's she's had Kamala Harris is half uh, Indian, you know, from okay. her mother from India, and half uh, she claims a- African American, but really Jamaican American. Okay. And uh, you know what I mean? Again, you know, but again, you look at the Democrats, and virtually all of their leading spokespeople and candidates, or potential candidates, with the exception of Hillary and Bernie are hyphenated Americans, you know, identity, practitioners of identity politics, appealing to a constituency that will go for them because of their racial mm-hmm. or biracial or ethnic or religious background or whatever. And, I mean, haven't we had enough of that? I mean, really, can't we just get down to we're Americans and, and run on that without, you know, appealing to this uh, constituency that is going to, you know, push them over the top as they did for... Barack Hussein Obama in 2008, let's face it. And, and let me ask you about this real quick, Peter, because uh, a, a lot of people question the legitimacy of Obama due to the nat- natural-born uh, citizen clause in the Constitution. And if I remember right, Camilla Harris, her, both of her parents, neither of them were U.S. citizens. Um, she was born was here, though, I believe. She oh, was okay. born in the okay. United States. And yeah. actually, she comes from a high-class background. I believe both of her parents, I think they're divorced, but they're both professional people. I think her father is a physician, and her mother might have been too. But she's from a, a well-to-do background, and more power to her. I'm glad mm-hmm. that her immigrant parents came here and did well and thrive. But you know, look at the track she's on now. I guess uh, she see she sees uh, which side the bread is buttered on, and she's going for it. Well, you know, Peter, uh, if if folks care to, uh, I'm taking a look right now at harris.senate.gov and she is a very electable uh public persona uh reading through her bio quickly uh, uh tireless prosecutor uh she's got all the bona fides to perhaps as you said really be some potential poison uh here in 2020 uh but you know what troubles me is a comment you made and I want to I want to extrapolate this for a moment get our listeners and viewers thinking about this as well. Hyphenated Americans think there's so much power in marrying those two words together. Hyphenated Americans. And Peter, 
consider the damage, the, in, in some cases the irreparable damage being done to our country by what exists in that hyphen. Absolutely. I, I, I alluded to that in the piece I did on Monday, September 11th, exclusively for the Hagman Report on a reflection on the 9-11 attacks 16 years later. And uh, first, of course, I acknowledged our debt to the heroes and the heroic acts that that people did that day and the days after, and also our, our sadness because of the victims, the almost 3,000 victims of that unprecedented terrorist attack. But then I also mentioned that a thought that comes to my mind when I think of 9-11 and like most Americans who were alive that day and of a certain age following the news obsessively that day and the days and weeks and months afterwards as we came to grips with 9-11. Uh, and I thought that as I reflect on it now, I thought on that day, 9-11-01, I would have never thought in a million years the way I was feeling that day and where, the way America was feeling that day united in our anger, our frustration, and our dedication to make the bastards pay for what they did, as I put it in my article. I would have never thought that uh, six years later, seven years later, we would be getting ready to anoint and to allow to accede to power a man named Barack Hussein Obama. And uh, this is politically incorrect to say this, but I will anyway. When I first, uh, not when I first heard that man's name, but when I got in touch with who he really was, as I was able to do several years before he ran for president, when I started investigating him, I thought, his name says it all, Barack Hussein Obama. He lived up to that name. He lived up to his background. He lived up to his inbred anti-Americanism, his hyphenated Americanism, his identity politics, and look at the eight years he gave us. In eight years, I think he more than any person in American history, certainly any president in American history, brought us right to the brink of the complete disaster, the abyss that we are staring into right now, thanks to Barack Hussein Obama. I was thinking the other day... Uh, you know, like like the two of you and you especially, John, I think are uh, students of uh, the history of Nazi Germany. How did that ever happen? How did that abomination of history, how was that allowed to happen in an advanced country like Germany, uh, allowing Hitler to be elected? And within seven years, Hitler, having served seven years in power as chancellor and then Fuhrer, brought that country into World War II. Unbelievable, the short amount of time. And I thought, that was done in about seven years, or actually even less than that. Uh, Barack Hussein Obama had eight years to do his dirty business. And it actually even started before January 20th, 2009, when Hussein Obama came to power. It really started on Election Day 2006. And that's when... Uh, the Republicans and President Bush had been so destroyed by the media and the Democrats that uh, the Democrats took over control of the Congress 
in 2006. And, of course, they came to power in the Congress in 2007. So they had a uh, at least a two-year head start on the rise of Barack Hussein Obama. So that's 10 years right there that I see them in power, really. And you could also say that they're still in power today. Although we elected Donald Trump, and he's been in office for seven and a half, year, seven and a half months now, uh, we see every day, those of us who pay, pay close attention, to the power and the control of the shadow government and the deep state on our lives. And Donald Trump may be the 45th president of the United States, but uh, it certainly doesn't look like it in terms of the, the, the reality that we see every day in the statist control over our lives and in the insanity that has now come to the fore in this country. So, you know, I know I should make it clear I'm no fan of the Republican Party. I'm not a registered Republican. <laughs> I'm an independent. I hold no brief for the Republicans, especially uh, the current state of the Republican Party. But uh, really, Donald Trump is our last hope. And the Republicans who comprise the Freedom Caucus and perhaps who we might be able to elect next year in 2018 is really our last hope. And if we get another Democrat, Socialist, Communist administration in there, a bifurcated, uh, hyphenated American identity politics administration that's going to shove socialized communist medicine down our throat, I, I don't see. I really don't see any hope if that happens. That's going to be the you end know, of the line, in my opinion. And 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 I would be uh, uh, I would tend to agree with you, Peter, uh, with that opinion. You know, uh, when we consider this hyphenated America, uh, I love words, and Peter, I know you love words too. Um, and we consider where we are today as a country. We are we are a tale of two countries of two ideologies of two worldviews that that have no common denominators whatsoever even if you look for the lowest common denominators they simply don't exist uh we have one half of the country that believes that abortion is okay the other half of the country it emphatically believes that life begins at conception and that we uh are under a biblical mandate to defend the defenseless now i consider that kind of the baseline of the tug-of-war. One mm -hmm. half of the country thinks that, well, really only the military or police should have guns. If there were no guns, there there would be no crime. And see, to me, mm -hmm. Peter, that's that's got, that's got the, the logic of a four-year-old behind it. The other half of us say, no, I have my guns so that I am never placed against my will in a situation like what we've seen in the last three years in Venezuela. So, so this hyphenated America thing, Peter, it's what our 45th president, Donald Trump, is dealing with today. And I know this is a big question, and I'm going to punch out and give you plenty of time to answer it. But, but Peter, in your opinion, is President Trump aware of hyphenated America? And if so, is his administration dealing with it to bring cohesion, to, get to, 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 to bring America back to America? Well, it's an excellent question, John. As usual, you guys ask excellent questions that uh, are difficult to answer. And I would say I think the jury is still out. You know, I, I paid very close attention to your guest last night, uh, Daniel Horowitz. I, I believe it was, wasn't it Daniel Horowitz who was sketching out the reality 
of uh, what he sees from his close-on perspective is going on with uh, President Trump and his administration right now. And he was he was painting a rather uh, realistic but ultimately discouraging and pessimistic picture of what's going on. And they also paid close attention to the several interviews, long-form interviews that have aired so far with Steve Bannon on 60 Minutes on Sunday night and then the last two nights, Monday and Tuesday, on Charlie Rose's PBS show. And the value there, at least, I mean, I'm no fan of Charlie Rose, of course, or PBS, but the advantage there, at least, is that the program gave Steve Bannon, uh, the former top advisor to President Trump, who left the White House a week or two ago, it gave Bannon the opportunity to really lay out how he sees things, his philosophy, and now as the uh, executive in charge of Breitbart.com, again, where he sees things going. And, of course, I thought it's too bad that he's no, long, he's no longer a member of the Trump inner circle because I found Bannon's uh, commentary and conclusions and uh, analysis of how and why they won the election last year and and, and how he's actually very optimistic. He actually said that he expects, Steve Bannon expects that uh, the Republicans, and that is conservative Republicans, will win more Senate seats next year in 2018. They're not going to lose and win more. Said they might, he's confident they might even pick up some more seats in the House of Representatives as well. And listening to him, it, it almost made you a believer again that he must have had a significant influence certainly on the last uh, months and days of the Trump campaign to help to push it over the top there. But, uh, you know, I thought if if the people of intelligence and patriotism and goodwill and energy like Steve Bannon can continue to come together and do what we have to do, then there is hope. You know, which which brings me around to another issue I'd like to comment on briefly because it's it's so easy to be depressed and uh, flailing at this time when we see what's going on. I mean, like you guys, I look at the news every day from a very obsessive, close-on perspective with my 45 years of experience as a journalist, and I can't believe what I'm seeing every day. I mean, one story after another absolutely blows my mind. I mean, in years past, if one of these stories had emerged on a given day, I would have thought, wow, isn't that amazing? Now there's literally dozens of them. You can't even keep track of them all. The crazy news that's coming out, the complete corruption of the news media, the propaganda matrix that we are drowning in, the control of, of Hollywood and popular culture by satanic influences that have given us, as Michael Savage calls it, the sewer pipe from Hollywood. You know, I could go on, uh, the, the corruption of academia, of public schooling, I mean, you name it. And then the stories that emerge every day. Uh, but the hope is, and I still have this hope, that we don't know where it's going to go. We, we don't know yet why, why Donald Trump won the election last year. I mean, we can listen to Steve Bannon and his analysis, and it sounds pretty good. We can listen to Hillary and Clinton I, and her analysis, too. <laughs> 
Oh boy, and let me and let me tell you, when you listen to her, her audio book excerpts that are playing, isn't that torture? That's worse than being waterboarded. <laughs> Peter, I've got to tell you, today on the Hagman Daily Show, uh, and Joe, Joe and I have been having so much fun doing that show, by the way, and, and thank you again for joining us a couple of weeks ago, and, and we'll, we'll have you back soon, but today on the Hagman Daily Show, I, I don't know what came over Joe. But I referred to the Clinton book three separate times. I was I was just getting um, some of the excerpts. I was reading some of the more outrageous excerpts that other people were pointing out. Um, there was one about how she was approached after the election by you know over twenty different females who apologized to her for not voting for her, and Hillary said she couldn't offer him absolution. I mean, just ridiculous things like that. And right now, even I'm reading her interview from The View today, where it's just as bad as her book. I mean. This lady is, uh, she's delusional. Or she's just been lied to by so many people around her for so often that she's become delusional. Uh, I believe yeah, it's she's both. She's been delusional for a long time. I mean, she's a delusional Saul Alinskyite mm-hmm. from her college days. You know, imagine waking up every day of your life since you were a teenager or a young woman in her case and, and dreaming about and plotting and planning for one thing and one thing only that someday you would be elected president of the United States that's what motivated her and her husband their entire adult lives actually Bill Clinton has said that he got the uh, the bug and the dream when he was 16 and he shook hands with JFK in the Rose Garden that he decided on that day that he was going to be president someday I mean, this is a, a serious pathology that is afflicting these people. And then you'll layer onto it whatever else is going on with them. Either they're, I mean, there's credible reports that Hillary Clinton is a, a satanic follower. I mean, I, I know a friend of mine is the brother of the New Age uh, Wiccan priestess who conducted the seances for Hillary Clinton when she was in the White House so she could channel the spirit of Eleanor Roosevelt and all this stuff. This has been well documented in uh, uh, Carl Bernstein's biography of Hillary Clinton and other sources. I mean, this woman is a wacko, and she's mm-hmm. dangerous. And thank God that she's probably not going to get close to power. But, you know, there's a whole slew of people like her standing in line there. But just to uh, just to briefly finish the thought I had uh, before I forget it, which I could easily do at this point, I was leading up to this thought um, in a roundabout way. Uh, nobody really knows why Donald Trump won. The polls suggested he was going to lose. The only people that I knew who had the mainstream voice were the political insiders at Fox News, Pat Cadell, Doug Schoen, and John Labutile, who uh, did a weekly show on Sunday on Fox for about four or five years, and then right after the election they disappeared, never heard from again. They were predicting for years in advance of Donald Trump that somebody would come along who would harness the kind of energy and momentum that Trump wound up doing. They didn't name him per se, but when he emerged, they said, watch out for this guy. He could take it all away, and he did. And I think, you know, we'll never really know or understand fully how things like social media, the alternative media, uh, podcasts or shows like the very one we're doing right now, uh, you know, more notable ones like Alex Jones, the talk radio conservatives like Michael Savage, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, Fox News, how all of these things came together 
to really give uh, the voice and, and the direction to what turned out to be a majority of Americans, at least in terms of the Electoral College vote, who made it possible for Donald Trump to win the election. So, you know, that gives us hope as we feel organically and intuitively that what we are doing here, uh, you, me, and others like us in the alternative media, working pretty much uh, <laughs> almost 24-7 <laughs> now out of this desperate need to keep on with it because the chips are down. The revolution is here. This is it. We either we either win or we lose for all time. So we're we're in the struggle right now, and 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 that's what keeps us going. Amen. Obviously. Amen. So you know, if if this continues to grow and spread virally, there's no telling what might happen. And and Steve Bannon and what he said on Charlie Rose, God bless him, might be a hundred percent right. I certainly hope he is. I'm I'm really counting on it. Well, you know, Peter, uh, a thought occurs to me. So we know that that election numbers were skewed to one degree or another on both sides of the aisle. Nonetheless, uh, at this point, the mainstream narrative is that 62 million Americans voted for 45th President Donald J. Trump. Now, uh, whether that was 62 million or 59.8 million or 63 million, the reality is he flipped five crucial states, uh, states that have not voted Republican in 30 years, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin. I mean, he got it done. My question for you, Peter, and I mean this question very sincerely, do the 62 million people who put President Donald Trump in the White House know what they want? Well, I think uh, another good question. I would start by saying I think they know what they don't want. I think what united a lot of the electorate and probably a vast majority of of Trump voters last year was we look around and we see an America that we don't recognize anymore, especially those of us uh, of an age that that we're old enough to remember uh, an America of even a decade ago or any time before that. I mean, my memory goes way back. Uh, You two guys uh, have have a a more recent memory, but you're old enough in your mid-30s, Joe, and your mid-40s, John, to remember an America that was 180 degrees different from the country we've got now. And Trump's brilliance in coming up with his slogan, Make America Great Again. I wondered about that when he first started using it, and then I very quickly thought, wasn't that brilliant? Four words that pretty much summarized exactly what he was all about and what we were really deep down all feeling, all feeling and, and experiencing, those of us who'd had it up to here with identity politics, political correctness, affirmative action, uh, a corrupt fake news media and all the other ills that we have seen in recent years, especially during the past eight years, but even going back further than that, of course. And, and, uh, so we start with that, that we just can't take them take it anymore, you know, like that old film from 1976, Network, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it yes. anymore. Yes. And then we find what unites us. And uh, actually, it could be interesting now, well, uh, before I forget this point, another thing that um, Steve Bannon 
had to say. And by the way, I recommend, uh, I, I never thought I would recommend that anybody track down a Charlie Rose, uh, program online, but charlierose.com <laughs> puts his programs, his PBS programs online and you can stream them and view them at no cost. And I strongly recommend that people look at his programs from Monday and Tuesday of this week. I think Tuesdays just went online today. His uh, interviews with Steve Bannon, the first one on Monday took up the whole show, 55 minutes. second one last night took up about 35 minutes. And uh, I, I sat here watching it at the time on television as it aired, and I, I, I had rapt attention. It's the first time we've really seen Steve Bannon uh, unleashed or... Uh, you know, in his yeah. own words, at length, with minimal interruptions. I have to say, at least Charlie gave Steve the opportunity to really say his piece, and yeah, I appreciate that. It was it was a, a good use of uh, public television. Finally, you know, of course, what they showed on 60 Minutes in uh, 22 minutes or whatever uh, really radically cut up. You know, was was much less valuable, but. Uh, you know, Bannon made the case very, very strongly, enthusiastically, and optimistically that we ain't seen nothing yet. That Americans actually, you know, it's beyond left and right. It's no longer Democrat, Republican. It's do you see a way clear through to an America that can work again, that can have yes. the industry yes. brought back, that jobs can come back, that we can grow the economy, that famous Slogan that I think Bill Clinton first started to use. Um, and then that will make it all so much better. We'll have money again. We'll have tax revenue again. We can lower the tax rate. We can unify the country. I mean, we saw some small examples of what's possible in the recent uh, weather-inspired uh, tragedies in Texas and in Florida where people came together, with some exceptions when looting occurred. But on the whole, Americans came together notwithstanding race, background, religion, uh, position in life, to help each other out and, and to literally save lives. So that was a good example of what's possible and what the American spirit still holds. So if we can just mobilize that and if, if uh, you know, in fact, it, it's interesting what, what Donald Trump is doing actually this very night where he's hosting a dinner for, uh, among other people, Charles Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Now, that might seem on the face of it a little strange and uh, an element of concern, but on the other hand, uh, the Republicans in Congress ha have so seriously let him down, so he's reaching out to Democrats and to some more moderate Democrats, the few who exist as well, and saying, you know, uh, to paraphrase Rodney King, the late Rodney King, uh, can't we just all agree to get along and maybe work together and see what's possible, you know? And if anybody can maybe pull it off, hopefully it's Donald Trump, uh, maybe adhering or, or keeping to what we hope are his, uh, conservative bedrock principles. We'll see. But, you know, when they put Donald Trump down, his critics, and which includes pretty much everybody in the establishment now, when they put him down for being God, a Nazi sympathizer, a white nationalist, a racist, an anti-Semite, I think, you know, what a completely inaccurate picture. Here's a guy who triumphed in New York City business and real estate. New York City being one of the most ethnically, religiously, racially diverse cities in the world, certainly in the United States, 
And if there had ever been any whiff, any hint that this guy harbored a, a racial, uh, racist or anti-Semitic bone in his body, it would have come out years ago, and it never has. So, you know, there's the absurdity there. But, uh, you know, I, I still have hope. I mean, he's only seven and a half months into his administration, and when you get right down to it, there's no alternative. Where is the alternative to Donald Trump? We have to continue to hope, to pray for him, uh, to keep his feet to the fire when he does the wrong thing. I've been listening to uh, Dr. Michael Savage again recently, and uh, and it was nice, as you mentioned, that he linked to um, my uh, 9-11 article at the Hagman Report, and he also linked to my Hagman Report article of last week in which I uh, talked about the uh, study that it, uh, found that Christianity is an endangered species now. But that was very, very interesting, and he linked directly to both of them. I sent him the articles, and he uh, and Peter, we want to we want to thank uh, Dr. Savage for that as well. We have tweeted out on our social media feeds and uh, mentioned it both on the Doug Hagman show as well as Joe and I's effort in the afternoons, the Hagman Daily Show. Uh, Dr. Michael Savage, thank you so much, sir, for uh, yes. for fighting this fight with us. Now, Peter. You asked a okay, question. Can I just finish the thought? Yes, before sir. I, I was just going to mention this about what Dr. Savage said. He's been very critical of uh, President Trump in recent days and weeks. And, of course, he was a, a major Trump supporter and was taking a lot of credit for helping to get Trump elected. And he had a one-on-one meeting. Not one-on-one, but he was invited to join a, a uh, dessert party that President Trump was having at Mar-a-Lago Uh I forget it was right before, right after the inauguration, and he, Dr. Savage, was very proud of that and the photograph that came out of that. But uh, he mentioned the other day on his show that he probably will never be invited to a similar event like that again because he's become critical of President Trump where criticism is deserved. And Mark Levin, another conservative talk show host, mainstream national talk show host, has been critical of President Trump. So where he deserves criticism, he he's going to get it, and he should get it. But you know, we still have to trust that he got there for a reason, for a purpose, and uh, you know, we wish him well. And again, you know, it's the only option we've got. But exactly, well, it is the only option we've got. And uh, just speaking personally, I I pray for President Donald Trump. I'm so grateful that he became president of the United States. I, uh, Peter, in 45 years of being alive, uh, when I woke up. Uh, that morning uh, would it be I guess November 9th of last year and uh, opened up my phone and saw that it was in fact President Donald J. Trump I I felt like I was almost floating up out of my bed when I saw that I was so unbelievably unbelievably relieved I called my dad I said dad how are you doing he said I I can't you know my dad's a 65 year old very successful businessman he said I can't I can't hardly believe what I'm seeing on the networks I, I mean this is he said, "Son, this is a miracle." So, Peter, what I'd like to what I'd like to sort of present uh, you with, you made a comment a moment ago uh, with regard to the Cajun Navy and to the neighbor mm-hmm. helping neighbor optics that we saw all through the Gulf Coast and 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 from Georgia on down to you know through Texas and and all these these devastated uh, hurricane areas. And you said, when we see what the American spirit still holds. And I think that's the key. It's the key is 
what is the spirit of this country at this time? Where is the spiritual health? If we were to have a national fitness test, where is our spiritual health at this time? Now, I don't want to be unduly negative, Peter. I personally feel like we would be found wanting in that spiritual test. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, folks, take a look. Uh, blow the dust off your Bible and take a look at Second Chronicles 7.14. It's a very good place for this nation to start. Uh, Peter, I think so much of what we see from President Trump over the next three years uh, is really going to depend on the determination of the 62 million people who put them there who put him there it's like it's almost like we have two different components we have our leader but then we have the sum total of all of us and where we need to as a country develop and get it together and it's and it starts between families husbands wives boyfriends girlfriends brothers sisters we've got to get the american spirit healthier peter Absolutely. And before I confront your question, your comment with an answer or a, a comment of my own, uh, you're mentioning your awakening on November 9th and learning the news of uh, Donald Trump's election. He was president-elect. Well, we were watching uh, the coverage live here in the Pacific Time Zone, and I literally cried <laughs> when he was when it was announced that he would be the next president. It was a moment I'll never forget. It was the pent-up emotion of the previous eight years at that point of complete despair that it had led me to. Yeah. And I thought, there's, there's hope. There's Finally, there's hope. But, you know, I was reminded in listening to your comments there, John, that uh, I, I concluded my article on 911 that I wrote for the Hagman Report online on Monday of this week with a quote from a quote from the Bible that the, the truth shall set you free. And I thought, well, this is a good place that we can start. I mean, I, I agree with you. If we sat here and deconstructed the state of America, in particular the spiritual health and state of America, it would be a terrible picture. And I think it was validated by the survey which I wrote about one week ago and which was in the media last week that the state of, of Christianity, of Christian belief and practice in this country is at what looks like its lowest point in the history of this, of this country. And, and it's similar, if not worse, in Western Europe and the countries that gave us Christianity starting in uh, the Middle Ages. So we're at a low ebb we're at a low point. But on the other hand, we have now the Internet, social media, the alternative media. We have what we're doing right now, uh, tons of podcasts and streaming shows out there. We have a number of mainstream sources. You know, We often cite Sean Hannity at Fox News, and there are others at Fox News who continue to do uh, God's work there. And I think Sean Hannity would say that. He's, he's a a very uh, seriously believing Christian man and has told me that himself on several occasions. So we're dealing with the truth as we see it, and I think we're on the right track. And what we're doing, not us alone, of course, but literally millions of people who are engaged in this kind of work 
even if they're do, doing it by sharing uh, and, and retweeting things with, with their friends and in their circle or sharing it by word of mouth. We are sharing the truth, which for many of us, the source is, and it's growing larger by the day, our understanding of the Bible, of Christianity, of the work that Jesus did when he was on the planet. And this is the source of our ability to analyze the insanity that we see going on and the reality around us. In my opinion now, if you don't have a spiritual understanding and an underpinning, this reality today is going to confuse you greatly, if not terminally, and make you a susceptible victim to the satanic influences that are out there at every turn. So we like to feel, and I think we are, on the right track here. And so are many other Americans. How many millions, we will never know. And many of them voted for Donald Trump. I mean, I've seen polls that, what is it, like 80% of uh, evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, of those who voted, voted for Donald Trump last November. And we have to think that this number of people touched by the truth, which is where we're starting in analyzing reality, is going to grow. And as we bring in references, and as you do, pretty much every night on your show, either with your commentary or with many of your guests who are uh, very aware, biblically, obviously, uh, this is just going to really help the country's understanding and its spiritual health in the short and the long term. And uh, again, if it doesn't, well, we've done the best we could and it's in God's hands. But... um, I have to think that it will, and it's what helps to motivate me every day in this very tiring enterprise that we're all engaged in here. Uh, I was thinking earlier how uh, an interesting show sometime might be that we get together, since we know each other so well by now. I think this is the tenth time that I've uh, been on the Hagman Report since June 6th, including the fifth time on video Skype. And each time has been uh, a a very high pleasure and a high point in my life. But we could convene some time and just um, chew the fat, talk informally about what what it's like, a day in the life of Doug, Joe, John, and Peter. Maybe I could help to do the interviewing or the debriefing (laughs) of of what it's like like to be a writer in this area. You know, I mean, most of the audience probably doesn't have a clue of what the nuts and bolts are like to uh, write. I I think I I was doing some rough estimating that since May 19th, having written over 50 articles for American Thinker since then and another 32 or so for the Hagman Report, I think I've authored well over 100,000 words in the last three and a half months. And that's the equivalent of about two books. Michael Savage mentioned that his new a book on God is uh, comes in at 50,000 words. So, you know, I've written like two books worth of material in all these articles. And and by the way, I've done it for nothing because American Thinker doesn't pay any of its writers. They make that clear right on their uh, writers guidelines page. And uh but it's still it's a privilege to write for them because I know that Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have read 
my thoughts and reporting there. So it's a privilege, just as it's a privilege to come on uh, your program and to contribute to the Hagman Report. You you can't put a price on it, what the value is. It, it, it's a privilege to give back to be able to do this. Well, but, Peter, you know, it's a, just it's to a privilege to have you. And just to let you know, you got kind of your own fan club. Um, we we have a number of emailers saying, oh, thank you so much for bringing <laughs> Peter back on again. We love him. So uh, on top of the section you have on the website where your stories go, you have your own fan club as well. <laughs> By the I way, think... there's a there's a new GoFundMe page. But <laughs> I think uh, I, I think Peter Barry Chaka uh, may be in fact the fifth Beatle. Um, you know, <laughs> we 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 share that sentiment, Peter. And one of the things I personally appreciate about you so much is how prolific you are. You know. Um, I write articles, not, nothing like you do. Joe writes articles from time to time as well. We have the access to put them up at Hagman Report every day of the year. Something, to be perfectly honest, Peter, was a dream of mine like three years ago, to be able to go into the back end of HagmanReport.com and put up whatever I want to write about. And yet, mm-hmm. the sad irony is I work so many hours a day to produce the show, I write very few articles at this time. You are a writing madman. You're a monster constantly getting these ideas out, constantly um, uh, commentating on and analyzing what's fresh in the news cycle. And uh, I am not blowing smoke up your kilt, sir, when I tell you that uh, your work is significant show prep for uh, Joe and I at the Hagman Daily Show as well as for Doug Hagman uh, on the uh, Doug Hagman Show also. So it's always a a pleasure and an honor to bring you in, Peter Barry Chaka. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left, uh, Peter, and uh, you always take us out with something that's that's on your heart uh, and uh, indicates how you're feeling. Uh, I'm going to give it to Joe. I'm not sure exactly how much time we have left, but Peter, thank you for we've joining us. Minutes. And let's three minutes. Three minutes. So we've got three minutes, Peter. We're going to give that to you. Speak from the heart. Tell us. Tell us how you're feeling, and uh, we just love having you. Well. John, right back at you with the comments you just made. I I mentioned this in an email to Doug yesterday before he uh, left on his trip because I had the uh, privilege of speaking with him for over an hour off the air yesterday, which is always a really special privilege. And I mentioned that uh, I owe so much to the Hagman Report because I've been a regular listener to the Hagman Report for uh, four or five years and, of course, a reader of the website and of Doug and Joe's material, Doug in particular. And uh, it's become such a part of my life and helped me to grow in my understanding and awareness and ability to actually do the work journalistically and analytically that I'm doing. So, uh, you know, it really works both ways, and, it, and it's why it's made this relationship that's evolving here between us and among us sp- so special. But I'll just end with a a few thoughts to try to wrap it up with a bow. What we're seeing in the big picture now, and one of your guests the other night, I think it was uh, Sergeant Tom Juby, I believe, commented on, uh, if I'm getting that name right. Yeah, that was was retired RCMP Sergeant Tom Juby. I believe he was the one who mentioned the corruption of the, uh, the, the judicial system in North America, Canada, and the United States has been totally compromised. And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting and important point to keep in mind. As we see what's going forward is the politics of personal destruction. 
Donald Trump is they're attempting to destroy him. They're attempting to destroy uh, people on Fox News. We didn't have a chance to talk about uh, Eric Bowling, uh, formerly of Fox News, who I've been reporting on. And then the day after he was fired from Fox News last Friday, his son, his, his treasured son, Eric Chase Bowling Jr., came up dead at age 19 at university in Boulder, Colorado. It's a story that I'm continuing to follow up on, but it almost deserves a show in itself. But the destruction is getting really, really serious now. Sean Hannity used the term kill shot in May. He said, our enemies are trying to take us out with a kill shot. And I concluded one of my articles the other day at American Thinker and the Hagman Report saying, was Sean right and predictive in a way he might never have known in May that literally they are using kill shots now to take some of us out. But again, we have to be aware of these things as as discouraging and depressing as they may seem because ultimately they point to the truth. And as I said, and as we can continue to say, the truth shall set us free. So that's a good starting point or midpoint and then we can hopefully see our way to an end point, to a light at the end of the tunnel, as we clutch our Bibles and our guns here and go forward into the second American Revolution, which I think is just really getting underway. Peter Barry Chowka, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, it's been a, a fast hour. It's went by so fast. And, uh, folks, read Peter's articles. Check Hagman Report, bookmark the site, check it regularly. And Peter has a section on the right-hand side where you can read all of his latest articles right from Hagman Report. And thank you so much for that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thank Eric. He's the one that set that up. And Peter, we look thank forward you, to having you on in the future, and we will get together uh, one of these days and, and have a little uh, a little campfire uh, setting kind of discussion. Look forward to it. God, God bless you, guys. Peter. God Good bless night. you, Peter Chaka. Take care. All right. We'll be back after these messages with Charles Van Wick. Don't go anywhere. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. 
For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stain by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. At HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. Special, just a special guest for you, folks. Go to HagmanReport.com uh, for all of your news information needs and show information. Uh, that's HagmanReport.com. Follow us also on social networking. We've got a very special guest for you today. Uh, his really, I believe, his name should be a household name, and I do suspect for some it is. We have with us Charles Van Wick. Now. Charles Van Wick is a Christian missionary, author, and Christian activist, activist in Africa, South Africa. His, his, belief in, his belief in his Christian duty to protect the innocent, vulnerable, and oppressed led him to single-handedly, now listen to this, single-handedly return fire in the midst of a terrorist attack, saving untold numbers of people. Uh, now, um, imagine that. Uh, the story of how God led Charles to forgive and pursue reconciliation with his attackers is captured in his best-selling book, Shooting Back, The Right and Duty of Self-Defense. Now, let me, let me just say this. As a Christian man, I believe I have a right and a duty to shoot back, to protect my family, to protect the vulnerable, to protect the innocent. I believe that I have that duty as a Christian man. And failing that duty, I believe that I, I frankly, um, I, I'm, I would fail miserably. Here's a man that lived through one of the most terrifying, I believe, one of the most terrifying incidents ever. Um, Charles Van Wick was just an ordinary Christian man, and I and I take issue with that. That's just a because uh, I, I don't believe he was ordinary. I think he was extraordinary from day one. But it was July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety three, the day that would become known for the Saint James Massacre. It was on this date that Charles Van Wick shot back at the terrorists who were attacking an innocent congregation gathered in worship. 
and he saved many lives in the process. And I know that this is a, a conversation stopper many times with Christians. I, I know it's a it's a point of contention with many Christians, but in my view, it shouldn't be. And as I say, you know, oftentimes, and uh, as an investigator, uh, Exhibit A is Charles Van Wyck, along with his book, Shooting Back, The Right and Duty of Self-Defense, available at WND. And by the way, when you visit Superstore, WND Superstore, make sure you use the promo code HAGMAN. And I want to thank Michael Thompson for arranging this interview. Also, our own John Robertson as well and Eric the Tech and uh, Joe for everyone coming together to make this interview possible all the way from South Africa. I'd like to welcome uh, uh, Charles Van Wyck, whose website is missionaryinafrica.com. Sir, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored to be on your show, and uh, it's just great to be able to have a chat with you. Well, it's it's great to, to, first of all, it's great to meet you. It's an honor to have you. Oh, and, thank you very much. Uh, you've got an amazing, an amazing story. Just, if you don't mind, uh, let's just start uh, wherever you want to start. I mean, the pivotal day here is, is of course, July 25th, 1993. If you want to start there with that day, that's fine. If you want to give a little little bit of an introduction in, ahead of that, that's fine, too. Um but uh, certainly something happened, a life-changing event happened on that day, which resulted in the book shooting back the right and duty of self-defense. So go ahead and, and, and just uh, right. let's, uh, let's get started. Great. Um, I think it's probably best to start on that day. It was actually a cold winter's night in Cape Town, South Africa. We were sitting in a church service, quite a, a large hall, seated uh, probably about 1,500 people which is very really large for, for South African church. And there were about a 1,000 people present that evening uh, because of the cold and the, the pouring rain outside. And we were sitting listening to some young people who were singing on the stage when all of a sudden there was a noise at the front door of the church and uh, some men stepped into the church. And when they came in making a noise by banging the doors open, uh, I saw them standing there and immediately I thought there was a play going to take place and I'd heard there was going to be a play for the youth uh, a show uh, where the uh, police would come in and grab the youth and take them away and then the youth would have a discussion about uh, what would we do in South Africa if we uh, weren't allowed to practice our faith anymore and uh, these people came in, they made this racket of a noise. Uh, I tried to ignore them and, and just keep watching the young people that were singing on the stage. And all of a sudden, they opened up fire with their automatic rifles, and they also had hand grenades with them. They had taken uh, little nails and uh, attached it to the outside of the hand grenades so that when they lab- lobbed the grenades into the congregation, they uh, would get more shrapnel and one of my friends uh, his wife actually got uh, a nail stuck in her foot too but uh, as they were doing this um, the everybody went down onto the ground they got down as low as possible to hide away from the, the bullets that were being shot all over the church and uh, one young man with the name of uh, Gerard Harker he was 21 years old he um, actually uh, fell on top of a grenade uh, to save the people sitting around him 
which is just incredible uh, to to hear or see that happen. And his little brother that was sitting next to him was also killed in the incident. And another young man, Richard O'Keel, he is only 17 years old. He had two little girls sitting next to him. Well, I'm still friends with one of them today, Lisa. But uh, Lisa and Bonnie were sitting on either side of Richard. And when the attack happened, uh, Lisa and uh, young uh, Richard fell onto the ground, immediately got down as low as possible under the benches. But uh, Bonnie was scared stiff. She just sat there and stared at the attackers. And so Richard went up on his knees to pull young Bonnie down onto the ground, and he took a bullet in the back of the head trying to save her life. Uh, About 11 people were murdered that evening, and over 50 were wounded. But uh, it was just an uh, incredible um, uh, time. Uh, The the chaos was uh, just mind-blowing. Uh, but by God's grace, it's, it's just interesting for us as Christians, um, seeing young people giving their lives for others, not that they pre-thought this out uh, possibly, but yet we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life for us. Uh, what an amazing testimony to have a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old giving their lives for their friends and other people sitting around them. Um, the church is built very much like a cinema, so it's very high at the back and low in the front. Uh, there was a stage where these young people were singing in the front. And so when we all went down, um, I had a little 38 Special Revolver with me, which I carried in an ankle holster, and I pulled that out, and I knelt behind the bench in front of me, and I took two shots. I was sitting fourth row from the back, so it was very far from the front of the church where the terrorists had entered um, by the stage in the front where the young people were singing. So um, I took two shots at them. I realized they're just far too far away for the, the, the gun that I had with me, a little two-inch barrel uh, made for very close self-defense, not for shooting across a, a thousand, uh, one and a half thousand seater church. And so I went on all fours and I crawled to an aisle and I ran out the back door of the church And the idea was to come in behind the attackers and shoot them in the back at close range to stop the attack from from carrying on. And as I ran down the stairs at the back and I came running around the corner, I saw the terrorists already standing at the getaway car. And what I didn't know at that time was that I hit one of them inside the church with one of my first two rounds uh, that I had shot at them. Good shot. And... Well, thank you. <laughs> it was a bit uh, a chaos at the moment because as I came running around the church, they were standing at the getaway car and um, one of them was standing at the back left door of the car, but he wasn't going anywhere. He was standing, staring at the door they had come out of. And after knowing now, looking back, uh, knowing that I hit one of them, he was probably waiting for me to come running out of that door and he would have just blown me away uh, with his automatic rifle. So by God's grace, I was behind them. I took another three shots at them, and they jumped in the car and drove off. And one of the my rounds was embedded in the car door, which helped the police um, find the car later, and uh, blood from the man that I hit was on the seats of the getaway car, and so they used forensics to trace him too. So that's a bit, just a little synopsis of, of what actually happened that evening. Well, um, so you were not... Um, pastoring this church, you were just sitting there as an attendee watching this unfold. That's right, yes. I'm a, a full-time missionary 
And I'm uh, so I, very, I visit and support uh, various churches around Africa. I work in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which isn't democratic or a republic, and uh, various countries uh, that we do mission work in a ministry. Uh, was anybody else in the church armed? Do you know? Or were you the yes, only I know. I know of two people that were armed, uh, Doug. The one was a friend of mine. Uh, he wasn't in a position to, to shoot back. And the other was somebody I just saw with the cleaning up afterwards, uh, when, um, you know, while we were trying to get people out and, and corpses, uh, and what have you, uh, removed and injured people to the ambulances. I did see somebody with a firearm on his, on his waist, on a waist belt. I didn't chat to him. There was too much chaos going on. So there are two people, others that are new, that were armed that evening, but uh, it doesn't seem like either were in a position to do anything about uh, the attack. That's um, that's very fascinating. This whole story, uh, how this unfolded. You know, um, most people, none of the last things they think about, at least here in America, when they go to church, is should I have a sidearm on me? And uh, uh, go ahead. I think that's a very good point. You know, in South Africa, we had the same issues throughout our history. Um, uh, my family's been here since the late 1600s in Africa, in, in Southern Africa, and through all the various wars, uh, I mean, we've been at war for years and years in Southern Africa, and when wars took place, the 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 women and children always, always uh, sought refuge in the church. That's where they went and were protected because people wouldn't go and murder and kill people in churches. So I think that's very much the, the idea but with the new world of, of terrorism that's going on around and, and the many attacks that have taken place in, in religious buildings uh, around the world, there's certainly a new new ball game that we have to deal with. Yeah, you know, it, it, but now we're talking um, 1993. What is that? Uh, tell me with the math. Tw- uh, 23 <laughs> or 24 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 24 years ago. Uh, the last I suspect the last thing you would have expected was to have that happen in that venue or that's right uh, yes, uh, wow yes, uh, there's a lot of chaos going on in the country at the time it's right at the end of the the era of apartheid in South Africa uh, but the interesting thing is that the the political parties were really sitting at the negotiation tables preparing for the new South Africa when this happened and, and that's what uh, I think really rocked everybody was because we uh, people were looking forward to a new dispensation they were looking forward to being accepted by the rest of the world back into the world community and all of a sudden uh, while they're negotiating trying to sort things out uh, this happened and I was interviewed by a newspaper reporter in South Africa and the commander of the troops the Azanian People's Liberation Army Litlapa and Bechlele were sitting with me uh, while we were being interviewed and the reporter asked him why why did you attack the church when everybody was already at the negotiation table and preparing for the new dispensation it, it just seems odd and a really interesting answer he said this this attack was a terrorist attack in the true sense of what terrorism is all about we did it to instill fear in the whites in South Africa so the idea was to scare people so much that they would tell their leaders to just give the give the enemy, <laughs> if you want to call them that, uh, give them whatever they ask for, and let's get this thing sorted out and and um, you know get the new dispensation, uh, hand over whatever needs to be handed over, and let's get on with it. Um, 
Charles, we want to ask you the so after this uh, attack happened, after you returned shots, you saw them flee. You mentioned the bullet hole that went into the door uh, helped the police identify the car, which later you found the they found the blood of uh, one of the men you hit in there. Um, what happened to the terrorists that you that that you shot? How many did you get, and were they arrested? Yes, I hit uh, one of them. So he was arrested. He went to court, and I had to appear in court uh, against him and to witness against him. And later on, all the others were found. Uh, I, I'm not sure if the first one gave all the information to the police. I wasn't uh, open to that information. But uh, they were all caught in the end. Uh, the first one went to jail, and he spent five and a half years in jail. But we had what in South Africa what we call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, whereby you could come before this commission after the apartheid dispensation and if you had been involved in any politically motivated crimes you could come clear and tell your story and the commission would decide if you could go uh, get off free and not have to go back to prison again and so these young men four of them did application at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they were uh, granted amnesty and so the other three uh, didn't have to go to uh, to prison, and the other, the one that I hit, Kaya Makoma, he was let out. He was released at that time. So, so uh, one, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just, I'm just trying to reconcile this in my head. You speaking, you speak of reconciliation. Uh, Eleven members of the congregation dead, over fifty wounded, and these men walk basically i mean is that what you're saying that they they served minimal sentences if any and walked yes well three served none and one served five and a half years and then they did walk yes mm. uh, and um that that's a very difficult issue for for us as christians to deal with too because even although um, we uh, are uh, told and instructed by god to forgive people that doesn't mean that justice mustn't take place and uh, and and the um, the civil authorities uh, are not God's servants in the sense that they can forgive people. Uh, they exist uh, for the sake of justice. Uh, the church is God's ministers of grace. We're the one that teach people forgiveness. We're the ones that preach forgiveness. Um, and so this is a really tough uh, issue to deal with as Christians in South Africa. Uh, and it also made it difficult for me because uh, I didn't want to be seen as somebody who, uh, even although I personally forgave these people, I didn't believe it was right uh, that uh, they could get away with, with uh, just, you know, justice was being done. And I told them that. I, I spoke to them about it. And one of them asked if I would come before the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on their behalf. Um, their sister phoned me and asked. And I made it very clear to them that I believe that they should get the death penalty for, for what they did. And we were very open in our discussions. And I said, you know, I believe in forgiveness. I've forgiven you for what you've done. I represent uh, God's, uh, the church, the, the Christians in the world. We're the ministers of grace. But the, the ministers of justice, um, the, the political leaders, uh, are supposed to, to uh, sort out justice. That's why they exist. And, and so it was really interesting, interesting discussions. You know, uh, I think there are lots of people that are very surprised that uh, the person that's a missionary uh, will shoot back at people <laughs> trying to defend them 
still forgive them and then are still called for justice. It, it sounds a bit strange to some people, but that's uh, what I believe is expected of us in Scripture. And, and, and thank you for, for taking that position because um, I, I don't believe that uh, being a Christian is synonymous for being a professional victim, nor do I believe being it's synonymous with being a uh, coward or a wimp. Which, yes. you know, I, I believe that we are called upon to protect the innocent, the, the most innocent and vulnerable among us. And feeling that, you know, we've got uh, blood on our own hands. That's my belief. And I think that, you know, I mean, wow, um, you yeah. put that into action. Um, well, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, that's the reason why my book is called The Right and Duty of Self-Defense. It's, it's not just a right. You have a duty. And that's why I agree. I agree with you fully. Uh, we have a duty to protect, to protect the innocent, those whom God has entrusted to us. And so, um, or even referring to Scripture, Proverbs 20, 25, verse 26, like a muddied spring or polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. We're not supposed to give way to the wicked. We've got to stand our ground. We haven't been called to be doormats. And, uh, you know, be, people... Um, look at scripture and they really misinterpret things to try and as you say you know they want us to be cowards and we must just cower away and let the wicked uh, have their their run and do whatever they want to do and that's that's certainly not not right no i, I totally agree with you and if i can go back to that day because this is something and i know that you address uh, much of this in your book and of, of course the book is shooting back and, and i would recommend everyone go to wnd superstore using promo code Hagman and, and get yourself a copy of this book. This is just, to me, um, one of the most enlightening, informative, and uh, to an extent, uh, reassuring books. And that might sound weird given the, given the title and the context, but but uh, uh, Charles Van, uh, Van Wick is, is an incredible author, and he lays everything out perfectly. But was the motivation back then, just going back to that day, the motivation of, of these terrorists this was a decided attack upon Christians just to be clear right this was this was not I mean this was not the, the target selection was a Christian congregation as opposed to a mall or a coffee shop this was a yes okay and that was their motivation yeah. yes uh, it's interesting long after the attack I was uh, had a meeting at Parliament with uh, the commander of the troops um, we were meeting there for, a, for some press uh, inter media interviews and he introduced me to a former cadre of theirs a former soldier uh, terrorist and these were his words he says there we thought the church was a gun free zone uh. but boy did Charles have a, um, a surprise for us <laughs> and so he made it very clear they, we were an English speaking church and they probably thought we were very liberal. Uh, they didn't attack an Afrikaans Dutch reformed the farmers' church on a Sunday morning. Right. <laughs> there, there would have there would have been multiple weapons <laughs> coming out of there to defend the congregation. Uh, and I think they they just saw us as a bunch of um, sitting ducks. Well, not I thought they, that's exactly what they thought that we were sitting ducks and there'd be no response. Wow. Okay. Uh, this is amazing, and, and you know, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't note that. Uh, um, <coughs> excuse me, Chuck Norris weighed in on your book and DVD combination uh, as well, saying that. Uh, uh, I mean, it, certainly, 
providing an endorsement for your your book and DVD. That's Chuck Norris, and of course we've got uh, many, many, um, many uh, Christians and patriots and Christian patriots who uh, who believe in your book, uh, shooting back the right and duty of self-defense. So uh, this is incredible. And I and I look at you, and Joe and I look at you, and we were talking before the show um, that. This road that you've taken here, from from that day forward, is to me. I mean, you've learned a lot. You're teaching a lot. It's incredible. So, um, okay. Um, ultimately, you were led to forgive and even pursue reconciliation with your attackers. Now, I don't know if, if I'm kind of jumping ahead here, if there's like a lot of real estate time and such in between no, and events. No, no, that's, that's fine. Um, <coughs> I, yes, it took a while. When I was, um, trying to fathom, uh, issues and deal with the whole attack, um, it was a, a rough ride for me. I must admit that straight after the attack, I hated the attackers. And I even said so at the police um, time that we spent with a, a police psychologist afterwards. Uh, everybody was saying how they had forgiven the attackers in this group that we were sitting in. And the police psychologist was giving advice and hearing everybody's stories. And I just said to everybody there, I have not forgiven these people and I hate them for what they've done. Uh, this was a real um, strong, tough <laughs> long-winded issue for me to deal with and, and ultimately I realized that the scripture says well God tells us if we don't forgive others he's not going to forgive us and then you know what greater love is there than Jesus Christ dying for us while we sinners and uh, I realized that I needed to forgive these people but then again not that I must call for there to be no justice justice still needs to be done but I personally have to forgive them and and you know there's, there's being bitter. Uh, it only hurts you, the bitter person. The people uh, that have hurt you, uh, or they might not even be aware of the fact that they've hurt you, are carrying on with their lives happily, and you are busy, um, you know, falling to pieces, and um, you know, you, you're struggling with with all the issues that goes with bitterness. So lots of people get sick from it. Uh, they st- struggle with psychological trauma because of it, um, and and forgiveness is so liberating. You know, you can get on with your life. I could, once I've forgiven these people, I could go s- sit with Kaya in prison and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. I could go to their meetings and, and speak to the people there. Um, it was a frightening experience for me. I was I was, I was scared. <laughs> To, to do that, but uh, I believe that that's something that, that I had to do. So uh, just to get the, the story straight again, it was a long struggle. It wasn't easy. It was really tough. And at one stage, I even thought up a, a theology of unforgiveness. And basically, uh, it was saying that if these people haven't forgiven us, then you know I'm not going to forgive them, even though it's, this issue might have come uh, from our forefathers through many generations. Um, you know, I'm not going to forgive them. And mm. I, I thought, thought up all my reasons why I didn't need to do that. But obviously they were all unbiblical. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, a, it was a long, hard struggle. But uh, I did forgive them in the end. I ran a beekeeping course for, for the, 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 
for the former terrorists. I befriended them. Uh, we sat and we discussed all the things that uh, good people in good company don't discuss, like religion and politics <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it, it was a really interesting, interesting time of my life. You've got a marvelous sense of humor, by the way, and I like it. I like it <laughs> a lot. Our guest is, is Charles Van Wick. And, uh, folks, check out his book and DVD. You can also get it on, uh, by the ebook. And, uh, it's fantastic. As you said, Chuck Norris wrote the, um, wrote one of the uh, endorsements. Yeah, the endorsements on yep. the back. And the book is called Shooting Back the Right and Duty of Self Defense. And you can get that at WorldNet Daily Superstore. Make sure you use the promo code Hagman. Uh, Charles, can we talk a little bit about the biblical evidence supporting self-defense? Sure, sure. Um, there's a lot of confusion um, in Scripture. There are a lot of people that, that call themselves uh, pacifists. And I'll just like to tell you a quick story. Uh, in the mission organization that I was very involved in, our director was doing ministry in Sudan, and that was when there was the war still going on between North and South. Uh, south were the Christians and the North were the Muslims. And he took an American television crew into the Sudan with them, and they were busy filming the pastors in the South, the Christian pastors in the South. And the, the crewman asked the one of the pastors, what, what are your, your biggest needs? And the pastor said, we need military hardware to fight the Muslims who are murdering and killing our families and bombing us in our churches and our homes. And so my director uh, said to the pastor, you can't say that on the, on the camera for the American people. So the pastor said, well, why not? So my director said to him, well, well there are people in America that are pacifists. And so you'll be very careful about telling them you need military hardware for the Christians to fight a war. So the pastor looked at the director and said, well, what's a pacifist? Mm. Never heard of this before. And so my director, director said, well, they're the Christian people who love the Lord, but they'll never take up weapons to defend themselves. You know, they, they will always, um, they'll rather pray or whatever else, but they won't take up weapons. And the pastor looked at my director and said to him, then they're not Christian. <laughs> so, so just interesting to get that idea from people in a war zone where they're really struggling, they're fighting Muslims, they're uh, the Muslims are flying over and bombing them in their churches and in their homes. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got to find a theological basis for, for what you're doing. You know, are you, are you supposed to protect the innocent or not? And so it's, uh, it's always easy, I think, for people who are sitting in a very comfortable, uh, arena in their own country where, you know, they, they don't have to fight daily for their lives to protect their families to have a very laissez-faire attitude. Um, in, in dealing with scripture in this area. But, uh, scripture is very clear right from the beginning. Exodus 22 verse 2, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So in a life-threatening situation, we can protect ourselves with lethal force and there's no guilt uh, for that. And then the scripture carries on saying, if it's um, during the daytime, you can see the thief, then there is guilt for the bloodshed. That's a non-life-threatening situation. But if it's dark, you can't see him. Uh, you don't know if he's got a knife or a gun or what he's got on him. Then uh, if you take life uh, to protect yourself or your family in that life-threatening situation, then um, there's no you're not guilty of murder. Um, Proverbs 25 verse 26, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. We just spoke about that earlier. Uh, are we like the muddied well or uh, 
or muddied spring or polluted well? Are we going to sit back and be doormats for the wicked to do whatever they want? Um, then we also have First Timothy 5 verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And uh, we uh, provision isn't just for food and a motor car to drive and a roof over their head. Of course, we've got to see to the protection of our families. And so that is not just our right, but our duty uh, to defend them and protect them. And, and then we move over also to the to the New Testament. Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he says to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So Jesus had previously said to them, uh, you don't need to take a purse, you don't need to take bags with you or anything. And I saying, you need to take these things with you. And if you don't have a sword, which is the finest military weapon of their time, you need to go get yourself one. And then later we find that Peter actually used the sword to take off the ear of uh, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And many people will say, you know, Jesus told him to get rid of the sword then. But if you read the scripture, uh, Jesus, when he speaks to Peter, says to him, take your sword and put it in its place. In other words, he's using it at the wrong time. Jesus Christ didn't need um, Peter to, to look after him. He could call down legions of angels to protect him. And he was interfering at that time with, with God's um, great gift of salvation that was going to come through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And so there are a lot of uh, many, many scriptures. I deal with that in a whole chapter in my book, Shooting Back. But that's just a little quick synopsis of, of the various um, scriptures that uh, pertain to the protection of the innocent. And that's uh, very well stated, uh, Charles. And you, you said it right when you were describing uh, the pastor asking for, for guns and munitions. It is easy for a people who've become comfortable in their in their life and lifestyle that don't have to struggle for survival to sit back and uh, and to to say you know this is not Christian like somebody who's never been through something like this before. But when you're living in in a hostile territory or war torn region and you see you know these constant battles taking place and innocents getting slaughtered, it is um, something that you do have a duty to defend Otherwise, against. Otherwise, in Chicago, and I wanted to ask you. How does how does abortion? I wasn't going to go here with this, but how do you see abortion fitting into this, as far as innocent lives and, and the slaughter of children? And we don't have to go down this road if you don't want to, but it's just a question yes. I wanted to ask. Yes, uh, you know, my my theory is that every gun owner, um, if if he's thinking uh, philosophically correctly, he has to be against uh, abortion. Uh, you have to be if you are taking. Um, other people's lives into your hands by carrying a gun and having the potential to take their lives, then you must be concerned about all life, not just your own. I think it's uh, a disgrace for somebody to think that he's carrying a gun only for himself and, and never to protect anybody else. And if we are going to see other people as our brothers and sisters out there that also need protection, you know, am I going to sit by if a woman gets raped? Certainly not. If I see... Uh, somebody uh, knifing a, another young man and I have a firearm on me and the young man can't protect himself, I'm not going to stand and watch that happen. And, and so I think that uh, we as, as men who are armed, whether we Christians or not Christians, um, should be uh, pro-life. I, I don't see any other way that we can work this out theologically or philosophically and get away with it. Um, I think there's a, a big divide in our thinking, if we um, if we think it's fine for 
babies in the womb to be murdered and torn to pieces and right. uh, without us doing anything about it. And I'm, gl- I'm glad Joe asked that question because on, on many uh, in, in many conversational political, especially political forums, the there's this this mentality that well you you can't be for um, carrying a weapon and anti or pro life and carrying a weapon at the same time it doesn't mesh and there's this mental disconnect by That's many fine. people and I think you just cleared that up and and I think if people listen to what you said my goodness yeah we're looking after the innocent those who cannot look after themselves and and that's wonderful if, so I think go ahead yeah. so I, I think one of the challenges too is maybe our, our definition of 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 murder uh, you know the scripture is telling us very clearly that you shall not murder that, that's basically saying you shall not take an innocent life we're not told that we can't kill because straight after god uh, spoke to israel he said to them you're not allowed to murder he then sent them out to war and so we are allowed to kill under certain circumstances like we spoke about Exodus chapter 22 verse 2 um, uh, just a few minutes ago. And so we've got to get our definitions right. Christians are allowed to kill. We're allowed to kill when God tells us in his word we're allowed to kill and defend life with lethal force. Um, but we never, ever allowed to take an innocent life, um, you know, where we, we just become the, the judge and executioner. And uh, there again, too, we... we we also don't take revenge. Um, I had somebody telling me after the St. James Massacre, you know, you, you were fine returning fire inside the church while the attack was on. But the minute you ran outside the church, uh, the attack was over. And when you shot at the terrorists outside the church, you were taking revenge. And so it becomes very technical. You know, the armchair theologians can really give you a hard time afterwards. Hmm. And you know, even if you're standing, standing before a judge who believes that, you can get into a lot of trouble. Um, and so I, I needed to point out to this, this person um, that came up with this theory that the attack was still on. Even although they were standing at the getaway car, they were waiting for me or others to come running out of that church and they were going to blow them away um, with their automatic rifles. And it's only because I shot at them from behind, um, coming out the back door of the church, that they jumped in the cars and drove off. Or the car and drive off. Shooting back the right and duty of self-defense, uh, the, the hero Charles Van Wick, the author of that book, available at WND Superstore. Um, sir, if we can, if we can, kind of drag the lens. Uh, let's let, let's kind of look at a little bit of a larger picture here at this point. Um, you, of course, in South Africa. Um, let's talk about it, because a lot of people, and especially Christians, really don't know history. They don't know current events. They don't know the venue, the the environment in which you operate. They don't know South Africa. Let's talk about the demise of South Africa after Nelson Mandela's cronies took over. Let's talk about that because that's to me that's fascinating as well. Yes, it's it's been a, a big struggle in South Africa. Actually, what happened was during the time of Nelson Mandela, his organization was called the African National Congress. They were not a large group in South Africa. They were actually a very small minority group and a very large, freedom-loving, democratic, uh, American-loving organization called the Encarta Freedom Party, led by 
a man with the name of Dr. Mongasuti Butalezi. I'm sorry about all these African names. <laughs> <laughs> they get a bit complicated. Sp- and, sp- um, spell that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were a much, much bigger organization. And to cut a long story short, uh, we actually had the, the backing um, of the big American newspapers in those days. This is in the 80s. Um, and late 70s going into the 80s that actually um, set up the African National Congress as the go-to party in South Africa with Nelson Mandela um, as the leader. And uh, so they were not locally big. The money started pouring in because of uh, the liberal press in the United States uh, starting the whole movement. Um, And so um, they also covered up a lot of the terrorism that was going on um, it was quite incredible that you know every time there was a um, uh, a white policeman that that uh, did something, shot somebody, or or you know there was some problem uh, with them, it became world news. But but nobody was telling the story of the intertribal um, war that was going on between the the, the black factions, between the different tribal uh, people, uh, between the Encarta Freedom Party and Nelson Mandela's group and it is incredible to see that uh, how the press would just block anything that showed the communists in, in a bad light uh, like uh, Winnie Mandela uh, was involved with uh, young children being murdered that were part of what was called a soccer club. We had necklace murders um, by the different factions, uh, the the pro um, uh, the communist uh, black uh, movement, the African National Congress, uh, when people were seen as uh, those who were on the wrong side of the fence. In other words, they were pro the West, uh, pro freedom, and that sort of thing. Then they and they wouldn't take part in the um, the violent overthrow of the old government. Then they would be necklaced, and that was a terrible way of dying. They would take a tire from a car and put it over a person, throw petrol, gas all over them, and set them alight. And the tire would burn into their skin, and there would be a fiery pillar um, until they died with this black molten um, rubber from the tire basically going into their skin and and, uh, killing them. Uh, Terrible, terrible things that were going on in the country. People's uh, private parts being cut off and put on fences uh, terrible, terrible things that were going on. This was all ignored by the foreign press, well, the majority of it, and it was, you know, thrown in the all over the world that the fight is between black and white, uh, which it there was a little bit of truth to that um, because the whites were governing the country at the time, but the murders and the killings that were going on wasn't between the blacks and the whites. It was actually between the freedom-loving blacks and the communist uh, blacks. And, and that's what the the war was all about, is uh, fighting for the loot, as they say. And it's interesting now when I speak to former terrorists that were involved in, in fighting, and they say to me, you know, we, we shed our blood to put these people into power, but they are not sharing their freedom with us. Now, one wonders what their definition of freedom is. Well, it's, it's jobs, it's the loot, it's money. Um, it's business connections, it's business deals. Uh, that's freedom to them. And so when you're hearing Africans coming over to America and doing uh, 
national, uh, speeches on your national television and you hear them shouting for freedom, you know, you've got to ask the question is, what is that person's definition of freedom? Because it's certainly not American liberty. And so these, these things are, are really interesting when you see it from our perspective and how sometimes um, the Western press and media get it, get it wrong of what's really happening on the ground. I wouldn't even say sometimes anymore. I'd say just about every time. And, and deliberately. And deliberately. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 34 years old. I remember a little bit about um, the ongoing uh, battles that, that happened uh, there, but not much. And Nelson Mandela, he's become some sort of a historic figure, um, looked upon as an icon. Is that really true of who he was as a person when he was alive? No, he, he was, uh, you know, he's a man like everybody else. He was the best that they had. But, uh, you know, he, he was in court and, and was seen as a liar. A judge called him a liar and a, and a disgraceful witness, um, in court. Uh, he, they, his organization, uh, had concentration camps in which they mutilated their own people in places like Angola and Tanzania. Uh, the one in Angola was called Quattro. If anybody looks it up on the internet and does some uh, research on it, you'll find that people were tortured in these camps uh, to death. Uh, and the only thing they did wrong was question the authority of the Af- African National Congress. Nelson Mandela knew these things were happening. He did nothing about it. Um, back in South Africa... Uh, you know, they were very involved with uh, what was called the People's War, and they decided as leaders in the organization at a meeting in Lusaka in Zambia that they weren't only going to go for hard hard targets, they would also go for soft targets. And so they were blowing up um, people in restaurants and uh, shooting uh, innocent people in buses as they were driving past, and there was mayhem in the country. Every every shop you went into, you were, your bags were checked to see that you weren't carrying bombs on you. It was like living in a police state because of all the, the chaos and the terrorism uh, that was going on. And it was so unruly that now that the African National Congress has taken over, nothing's changed uh, except for that the whole country is falling to pieces. And And just to give you an idea, um, I've been involved in an attempt at carjacking, which also ended up in a gunfight. Um, uh, there's been burglaries on all sides of us. Wait, 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 wait a second. So somebody tried to carjack you? Yes, that's uh, right. I was I was in an attempted carjacking, and it also ended up in a gunfight. Yeah, um, I can see I can see that. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't mean to make light of it because obviously the, that's. But my goodness, okay, so. Uh, okay, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just want to make sure that that. Oh. Yes, well, you know, there's a there's a lot of chaos all over Africa, but South Africa was always the place that you know the rest of Africa always wanted to come down to because of the stability and things. And I've I've got friends now, uh, black friends who live in 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 shanty towns, and they're saying that things were better during the old National Party government during apartheid for them. You know, they well, they're talking about the girls that are, are being um, raped and murdered uh, down by the river. Um, a father who's raped his his daughter uh, just two days ago. Uh, we've got a lady in the Eastern Cape, about 800 uh, miles from where I I live, who caught three men gang raping her daughter. She took a knife and she stabbed one of the men to death. She slit the other two. They ended up in hospital, and she is being charged for murder with murder, um, trying to defend her daughter. And, and so we have these these chaotic laws chaos in the country. I spoke to a man who shot uh, 
uh, there were four um, people that broke into his house. They were in his lounge. He shot two of them dead. He went to court and uh, and ended up in jail for two years um, because he shot two men that broke into his house. They were in his lounge at night with his family there, um, and he went to jail for two years. And so we have this this absolute uh, chaos here. We've had cars stolen on houses both sides of ours. Um, I've been stoned in my vehicle, as in rocks and bricks thrown at me and the vehicle being smashed. Uh, a neighbor um, next door to me has been stabbed inside their house. A hundred yards up the road, somebody was murdered uh, from where I live. I've had to deal with child soldiers with uh, automatic rifles and on drugs screaming and shouting at us in the Congo. I've been held against my will in the Congo. You know, one can carry on. <laughs> but but, but wow. this is Africa. This is Africa. And South Africa wasn't like that, like the rest of Africa. This was like the the, the sort of the dream world. Some people used to play the fool and say it was the 51st state of America because it was a, a godly country. It was uh, well run. And I'm not trying to say that apartheid was a good policy, that was a disgrace, it was something that was terrible, horrible mark on our nation. But in about a 10-year period, during the worst of the People's War, we had about 20,000 people killed in South Africa. We now have 18 to 20,000 people murdered in South Africa every single year, and we have a woman raped every nine seconds in South oh Africa. Oh, my and, uh, and, and uh, sorry, can I just tell you about that? One of the biggest struggles in our country is baby rapes. Uh, ba- babies being raped. This is what we are sitting with. The total breakdown of society, of any kind of Western legal system. Uh, the, the place has fallen to pieces. Again, it sounds like Chicago. Uh, no, uh, and I and I and I say that kind of glibly. Sounds and worse I, than Chicago. Yeah, exactly. But but behind it, telling this, is the communist ideology, the black communist. The uh, would it be the black liberation theology, or am I mistaken on that? Yeah, no, you're not mistaken. There was a, a black theology which was called liberation theology. And that was very much um, pushed and um, taken into the media in a big time in South Africa. And the basic idea of that was that if Jesus Christ was alive today, he would have taken up an AK-47 and he would have been fighting for a just, uh, a just political system. And it was so ingrained in these people that the young man that I shot, uh, Kaya Makoma, he was, I think, 16 when he, when he shot up our church. When I went to visit him in jail after the court case, we'd sat and talked together. He'd say to me, Sean, I'm going to heaven because I was fighting for a just political system. And I'd say to him, Kaya, you can't even get into heaven by doing good things. You murdered innocent people in a church. That is wicked. That is sin. You, that is, you can't earn your way into heaven. We as Christians believe that we say by God's grace through faith and because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And uh, I had to explain this to him in detail because he's completely convinced that by shooting up a church, he had earned his way into heaven. Wow. How how did he react to that? He he listened very carefully. We we had a lot of good conversations. I I gave him a Bible to read, and I'd go visit him every, not every Saturday, on Saturday mornings in the prison, and we would talk about all sorts of things. And he'd he'd say to me, you know, we, we still... Um, slaughter animals and we sacrifice them to our ancestors and I see that in the Bible, you know, your people, your Christian people of in the in the in the beginning of the Bible did that and they stopped. Uh, why is that? And I could 
speak about Jesus Christ being the ultimate sacrifice so we didn't have to sacrifice animals anymore he was uh, God who became man and I could give him uh, you know those those uh, details we could talk about these things but uh, frightening experience in fact in South America there's, there's also a lot of the liberation theology mm. and uh, it, it, it is just such a poisonous um, ideology I, I, I understand well, so even today, well, it's even worse today, I suppose, is what you're saying. Um, it, it, it went from good to bad to worse. Where, where you're at today um, in South Africa, the conditions there obviously are, 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 are terrible, and, and that's directly related to the uh, post-Mandela, if you will, the uh, era. Shall we yes, say? we need to we need to go over. That's right. We didn't have abortion on demand in South Africa until Nelson Mandela took over, and when the vote came up in Parliament, he wouldn't give his his parliamentarians in his party uh, a a conscience vote. They were forced to vote party line, which was pro-abortion, and so some of the Catholics didn't go to Parliament on that day because they didn't want that on their conscience, and they were fined for not being there. But basically, the whole of abortion on demand, one and a half million babies murdered, was because of only Nelson Mandela, because he wouldn't give a conscience vote to his members of parliament. And our parliamentary system in South Africa isn't um, like uh, your Congress, where you're actually voting for a person that represents you. You actually vote for a party. And the party president then appoints all the members of parliament for the amount of seats that they got in the election. So no parliamentarian wants to upset the president of his party because he'll be kicked out of the seat, removed and replaced with somebody else. And so <laughs> the, the parliamentarians don't care about the voters. They care about what their, their uh, leader thinks about them. And so you, one can hardly call what we have democracy. It, it's actually quite quite a joke. Very interesting. And, Our, and, and, go ahead. Our guest, again, is uh, Charles Van Wick, and folks, go to WND Superstore and check out his book. It's called Shooting Back, The Right and Duty of Self-Defense, The Right and Duty of Self-Defense, and this is uh, Charles' story about a a church uh, that was attacked by terrorists in 1993, where 11 people were killed and it was a 53 wounded, where he returned fire and saved dozens of lives. Use the promo code Hagman, folks, on um, on that book. Charles, we only have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, um, anything coming up that you have uh, that you want to promote? Uh, any projects you got going on that people can reach out to you possibly to help you with? Help your team? Yeah, yeah and such. Yes. Yes, thank you very much. Um, my um, website, missionaryinafrica.com, has um, a blog on it, uh, which you can go straight through to, and you'll see lots of the projects that we're busy with. We're working in what we call the... The sort of shanty towns, we call them the, the townships um, in South Africa. I've got a young man who's a friend of mine who comes to camps that I'm running with a youth in Zimbabwe, and he was attacked by a crocodile, and his friends and him fought off the crocodile, and uh, they managed to save his leg, his foot, but now after three years, it's basically gone septic and rotting, rotting away, and uh, by God's grace, friends have got some funds together, and he's, he's preparing for the amputation of that. Uh, we got Christian camps coming up, working with uh, uh, the youth and with their parents in Zimbabwe. We're busy with work in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We've got projects uh, running up there and also in Zambia. So uh, 
too, too, too many to tell of, but uh, please, if you can go to missionaryinafrica.com and have a look there. Uh, we're very excited about the future. We know that things have gone uh, really bad in South Africa. Things have fallen apart, but the gospel of Jesus Christ changes that. And we're seeing lives being changed by, by his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. We're seeing people uh, pulling their, their themselves together. They're putting their faith and trust in him. They're not murdering anymore. We've got uh, people that are working with us that were leaders of gangs that were murdering people just a few years ago, and they are now serving uh, in the prison again, um, helping other people and teaching them about Jesus Christ and his amazing gospel. And so we're very excited about the future. Families are coming together that were broken. We've uh, seen churches uh, propping up all over Africa, the fastest growing area of the gospel, I believe, in the world at the moment. And um, so we're looking to great change. We're looking to great reformation and an exciting future, uh, worshiping God. And uh, uh, he promises us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we look forward to that. Amen. Amen. Uh, We've got about two minutes left. Uh, so, so you are facilitating, obviously, a range of, of strategic projects. Um, people that go to your website, and again, uh, give your website out again, please. Yeah, missionary okay. in Africa dot com. Okay. Missionary in Africa dot com. Yeah, That's and, right. And there they can contact. From there, they can use that as a point of contact for you. They could learn. Yes, about That's right. Okay. Good. Good. And they. They can also join uh, my mailing list. I send out about two newsletters a month. I keep people up to date with what's going on, and then uh, World Net Daily sometimes prints some of my newsletters, which are you know have to do with uh, firearms and self-defense, which we we have to uh, get involved with every now and again over here. Um, and jo- uh, Joseph Farrow, the founder of World Net Daily, has been been just really kind in publishing my book. It's a really short book. It can be read in a couple of hours. And uh, it's just been phenomenal to see the response um, due to WorldNet Daily publishing it. And I feel really honored as a an, an African man to have my book published in, in the United States of America. Well, Joe Farah, I, I have to say, is a stand-up guy. And, and your book is really, is, is it's again, informational, inspirational. It's taught me a lot, it's, especially uh, with respect to... Uh, uh, the scriptural application of self-defense, and I think that a lot of people would do well in getting a hold of a copy of your book and sharing it with their pastor, sharing it with their uh, with their with minister or with their neighbors and friends and people mm-hmm. people especially who are unsure of that. Uh, shall we say the uh, God and gun policy? You know, for <laughs> lack of a better word or phrase. But I, we do hope that you'll come back sometime with us and uh, check in from uh, checking with us from uh, now and again. Um, well, it's just been such a pleasure. Well, it's, it's been honor, an honor for me to be on your your program. I really appreciate you having me, and thank you very much. And keep up the good work you guys are doing. Well, well, thank you. And, and again, Cheryl Van Wick uh, from South Africa, Christian missionary, author, and activist. The uh, book is shooting back, and uh, the the right and duty of self defense. Right. The website is missionaryinafrica.com. Charles, again, thank you so much. Um, we look forward to having you back on, and it was a great interview. Thank you very much. God bless. Thank you, my friend. Folks, that'll that'll do it. Uh, the Hagman Report, HagmanReport.com. What a great interview. Thank you, M- Michael Thompson. Thank you, Joe Farrow. Thank you, Charles Van Wick, and thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in.